Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino, and as always, I am joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Martinez, who stays on the grind all the time. Gerard, how are you doing? Thank you for taking time out of your grinding to join us back for another episode of the Composite Two Star Recruits. My teeth are at a nub, and I grind, but I'm off the grid. Your dentist doesn't like all the grinding, but we love it here at USCFootball.com. This is the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, just a little bit of a milestone to throw at you. This is episode 50 of season one. Episode 50, you know, it's not 100 or anything, but 50 still, I think, is something we could, like, just give a shout-out to on the podcast, you know? Maybe tattoos? I I don't know if I would get a 50 just for the significance of having 50 episodes of this. It seems it seems like a low, low bar, you know? It, it doesn't seem like that's worthy of a tattoo. Maybe a temporary tattoo, but not a permanent tattoo. Maybe if you like tattoos, it could be worth it. How that's about true. at 100, you get a tattoo for yourself and for me, and you can have 200. So for a hundred, you want me to get a permanent tattoo? Get a hun- get a hundred for you, and then a hundred for me, and then so it'll be. Two oh, so you just want tattoo to say, "Hey, two stars, two composite stars, two hundred. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So is it like the tattoo is a hundred plus a hundred equals two hundred? Is that what it's going to look like, or is it just two hundred stacked, or is it just two hundreds times two? Like, what are we what are we talking about here? I don't know. I don't do division. You don't do division. You, we are going to play division hopefully soon on Xbox. Just a quick game plug. Well, I was grinding on that a little bit today, matter of oh, fact. You know, okay. I'm always on the grind. No matter what I'm doing, I got to grind. Gerard has been a little bit off the radar. I texted him that, and he responded like, I'm always grinding. And that's been his, like, big theme today, you know, going into – I was late to get into the studio, and he was like, I called you. Called you on Skype. Are you not, you're not grinding? So – this is just like going to be the theme for the episode, I guess, just staying on the grind. And we're staying on the grind after last week's four hour, nearly four hour episode. And we have another fun episode to talk about. Lots of things to talk about. Actually, I don't know if it's going to be four hours long, but lots of things to talk about. Obviously, Cliff Kingsbury joining the USC football staff. That's a big deal. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the baller bash. We're going to talk about the second transfer portal winning the dreaded transfer portal is opening up again that starts on saturday we have a transfer leaving usc not a transfer leaving a transfer out of usc at a very important position i have some monday practice observations that i'm gonna throw at gerard and see and see what his thoughts are uh former usc commit visited on campus and we got a couple listener questions so a lot to get to but before we do that i just have to remind everybody a big thank you to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. That is Meredith Schlosser, the number one real estate agent in Los Angeles. You know her, you love her, the top real estate agent with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five star sales reviews. It's summer, is right, right around the corner. You know, we're ending spring, and I'm very excited to have a house with a pool. And I can say that, and I can jump in that pool because of Meredith and her team helping me to get into a house over the summer. And I'm very thankful for that. So yes, I am a client of Meredith and her team. 
She is backed by a full service team that allows her to service a wide range of clientele for rental sales and purchases. She also has extensive experience with first time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by the Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. That is not Southern California. That's not LA County. That is the nation. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. Seriously, it is the best decision you can ever make when it comes to buying a house or selling your house. You can also check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Again, that is MeredithSchlosser.com. Best in the biz. Thank you again, the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, we are back again for episode 50, so we have to make it special, and we'll do that by killing this podcast with the cold open, and that is Cliff Kingsbury is joining the USC football staff as a senior offensive analyst. He will work with the quarterbacks. He will do some game planning. He will watch film with Lincoln Riley to be a fly in that quarterback room at USC, which is arguably the best in the country with a returning Heisman winner and Caleb Williams, a former four-star prospect in Miller Moss and a five-star signee early enrollee that is Malachi Nelson, a consensus top 10 prospect in the 2023 class. So a lot of talent in that room, just got a lot more talent with Cliff Kingsbury, the former Arizona head coach who was, as you know, fired from the Cardinals uh, several months ago. People thought he was going to take a sabbatical, did that for a little bit, went to Thailand, but then there was reports popping up that he was looking to get back into coaching, had some interest with the Houston Texans, some with the Baltimore Ravens, then ends up back at Southern California. For those that don't, rem- that don't remember, Cliff Kinsbury was officially the official, officially the official, he was the official offensive coordinator under Clay Helton for about, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes. And then got a call from some NFL teams. Lynn Swan didn't want to let him interview with some NFL teams. So he said, all right, here's my letter of resignation. And that lasted for a hot second. And he went off, got the Arizona job. And now he's back. Time is a flat circle, Gerard. Cliff Kingsbury is going to be on the USC football staff this year. He's officially the official transfer leaving grinding off the grid christian trevino big get for usc senior offensive analyst and what that means is that he's going to be able to be in the booth and he's going to be able to look at what defenses are doing and he's going to be able to have that conversation with lincoln riley whether it's during the offensive series or when they're on the sideline and they're talking about okay what do we want to do differently this series what is the defense trying to do personnel wise to counter what we're going to do. Probably going to have an eyeball over there scouting the sideline, seeing what the other coaching staff is doing from a personnel standpoint. Who are they talking to? There's a lot that goes into having more eyes on the field, experienced eyes, eyes that have been there in installing game plans, developing game plans, designing plays. And certainly Cliff Kingsbury has a ton of experience in the offense that USC is running now. And it's a different perspective. It's a great perspective also that, and I think this really is an impact on Caleb Williams, Kingsbury's coming from the NFL. And so you're getting a little bit more of 
some mentorship from a transitional standpoint, being able to say, hey, listen, this is working now. Uh, you're at the college level, but in the NFL, you're not going to be able to get away with that. So you might want to start working uh, in this particular aspect of your game a little more to tighten up. Um, I think it's just great overall. Now, obviously, you know, when you've got Lincoln Riley there, it's a little bit, of, um, you know, it's stacking, you know, some some greatness on top of some greatness. And you kind of want to spread your greatness out. And I'm sure you could say, hey, you know, we'd like that experience maybe, you know, along the offensive line or, or, or maybe somewhere else on the offense. Uh, but truth be told, I mean, it's a very strong coaching staff across the board on offense. You know, we've seen some very impressive development along the offensive line. Uh, I think Kyle McDonald is shown to be one of the better running back coaches in the country. You've got two wide receiver uh, coaches uh, that are on the staff, and one of them being Dennis Simmons is also the assistant to the head coach who has a lot of trust from Lincoln Riley. Uh, and, uh, and Zach Hansen, who I think, you know, brings a really good dynamic to the tight end room because he was a former offensive line coach and you've got receiver coaches there. You've got a, an offense, which, you know, always is going to be prolific from a passing standpoint. You need to have a little more supplemental instruction for those tight ends coming out of the high school ranks, which a lot of guys, when you're going to get them out of the high school ranks these days are going to be bigger receivers who have not necessarily played with their hand in the dirt. So having guy there that can instruct them from a blocking standpoint, run blocking standpoint, I think is big. I think it's, it, it's huge. And I, I actually think that that's a template um, going forward for uh, these type of offenses that are spread offenses that want to maintain some type of balance, which we know you have to have that type of balance to be able to be elite. And so, you know, overall, it's a really strong staff. And then you add Cliff Kingsbury on top of it. It's good from an administrative standpoint, too, because. It is. And we talked about this when we talked about Cliff Kingsbury potentially joining the staff like a month ago. You know, when we put that in the war room and talked about um, his interest and him being on campus and being a part of meetings, but not necessarily knowing, is he going to use that buyout that he had from the Cardinals to be able to, you know, go somewhere and, and, and have a job that is uh, really the job that he wanted? Because I think that's the thing. He really wants to be at USC. He could have gone elsewhere. He could have got a full-time job probably elsewhere. He, he could have been an offensive coordinator somewhere. I'm sure some teams, some pro, probably even Power 5 programs, want to move things around over the offseason if Kingsbury wanted to go back and wanted to be a coordinator right away. But this you know, puts him, from his perspective, back at the college level. He gets to get a feel for what's going on in college right now. He's been away for a little bit. Uh, he gets to connect with the best quarterback in the nation, a guy that's going to be a first round pick, perhaps the first pick in the draft next year. And it gives you just an idea of what's happening at this level. And obviously he's going to have potential opportunities to be a head coach or to be a coordinator at the college level in future years. Uh, maybe he decides, you know what, I want to go back to the NFL. I want to see if I can be a coordinator in the NFL. Probably not going to get a head coaching gig at the NFL. Uh, but it, it does, I think, expand his options a little more. And yeah, by the way, if uh, Lincoln Riley decides, hey, I'm going to take Caleb and we're going to go to the NFL in 2014 or excuse 2024, um, Cliff Kingsbury becomes a, a guy that's in a, in a good position to be at the top of the list for USC to replace Lincoln Riley. And so I know USC fans don't want to hear that. And it, it's, it's blasphemy and all that's crazy. You'd never leave USC. I've heard all that. That's fandom. That's vanity. That's not the business of college football. It's not the business of football in general. 
and opportunities come up and it's, it's all about the opportunity and uh, the various different factors that come along. I think from that standpoint, it'd have to be somebody that comes along and says, hey, we're going to give you the Pete deal. We're going to give you some GM powers. And whether the franchises that are in line to be able to draft a Caleb Williams or even offer a job to a Lincoln Riley are going to give that up, that remains to be seen. You know, that's, that's neither here nor there uh, as far as the hypotheticals go. But I think from Cliff Kingsbury's perspective, hey, you know what? That's an added thing. That's, that's, that's more potential. Like, hey, this, is, this, this would be a very interesting job for me to have. He was already off to coordinator uh, for a very short period of time, as you talked about. And, um, you know, we had heard uh, when he was just on campus and, and the talk was, you know, maybe he is going to be a senior analyst for USC. Uh, but he kind of still had his feelers out to see what other gigs were out there um, that he really liked L.A., liked the area, uh, liked just everything about the job, you know. And I mean, you got to remember, he was going to be the offensive coordinator under Clay Helton at USC. I mean, this is a guy that was hired by the Arizona Cardinals to be the head coach. And he was going to be the offensive coordinator under Clay Helton, who is now the head coach at Georgia Southern. So. Kind of mind-boggling. It, it's wild. Um, and to be honest with you, when he got fired from Texas Tech and he was coming to USC, I personally, and, I, and I, I'm always open to saying when I'm wrong, I thought no way he's going to get offered by the Jets or the Arizona Cardinals. There's two teams that came up in conversations with him going to the NFL, being hired as a head coach. I'm just like, I, I don't understand how in the world the NFL, and, and this is not a knock on Cliff Kingsbury. It's just, you know, he was not an NFL guy, not really had a lot of uh, experience in the NFL. And he just got fired by Texas Tech for going seven and five. That just, that still blows my mind even today to think about that. But nevertheless, he's come home, as they say, Chris. Well, you have to remember at that time, the NFL was like chasing the next like hot shot offensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, like a, like a Sean McVay. People were looking for the next hot shot Ooh, offensive true. coordinator and he fit that uh that mold apparently the nfl is a copycat league and certainly one thing mentioned this before with the urban meyer debacle in jacksonville that's gonna cause some nfl teams and some nfl owners to get cold feet right so that's gonna be something that people consider and they go well remember what happened with urban meyer now that was a whole dog and pony show and there was a lot of other stuff that was involved with that and i think you know lincoln riley disposition wise is a lot different than urban wire but nevertheless i could see that from a business standpoint you know again franchises sort of follow each other and they're looking for the next hot thing and and whatever you know whoever won whatever last is what the next hot thing is going to be and so that's not necessarily the the next up and coming uh, college head coach uh, obviously you know it worked with pete carroll uh, but a lot of other instances, it didn't work. I mean, Nick Saban got that shot and it didn't work. And he went back to Alabama immediately. So from that standpoint, yeah, there's there's a lot of pros and cons. There's a lot of arguments against and there's some arguments for as well. But nevertheless, I think that uh, Cliff Kingsbury, you know, is in a very good position at USC and USC you know, finally because you have Lincoln Riley there. And this is this is really Again, one of the bonuses, one of the perks of having a respected head coach who has done it elsewhere, right? He has credibility, is that other coaches don't mind and want to work under him or with him. You know, Alabama 
for more than a decade now has been able to find a way to be able to have multiple head coaches on their staff in analyst roles. And these are not guys that are on the field. These are guys that really are just there for meetings. They're going over film. Uh, they're, they're discussing and planning and helping with game plans. They're in the boxes during the games and they're watching and they're helping the coaching staff play call plays and adjust as the game goes on. And again, it's more eyes, it's more experience, it's more expertise. And I think that's always a good thing. And what Alabama has been able to do is have a system of that where they bring guys in like Mike Logsley, they bring guys in like Tosh McCoy, Steve Sarkeesian, and they keep them on the staff for a couple of years. And then they move them up because they've been successful. And those coordinators that are presently at those spots end up getting jobs elsewhere. And so you just move them up through the program. And they've been very successful in the past of doing that. Ohio State's done it in the past, not to the level of Alabama, but they've done it to some extent. And so this is one of those things that, you know, if you can create a system and you can create uh, the ability to bring in coaches and actually uh, help further their career, then you will continue to do this and it will help you. You know, you helping these coaches get jobs elsewhere is going to help you continue to recruit those coaches to be on your coaching staff. And that is going to be uh, something that's going to be a benefit to the team. And Lincoln kind of talked about that during his Tuesday media session, talked about the process, but he also talked about, because he was asked specifically, like, will this be able to take some things off of your plate just because, you know, Cliff is a regarded QB coach, you know, offensive mind, what have you. So will that take some of Lincoln's offensive responsibility away from him and let him maybe focus more on the defensive side of things? And he said, yeah. Possibly. And but he also and he mentioned that quickly with, you know, Will Harrier, Herringer, who was was brought on with the team last year and then took a job with the Cowboys this offseason. That was kind of that's kind of the spot that Cliff is filling. He said, you know, Will fill took off some stuff from my plate as well. But he also kind of noted that it's a little bit different with Cliff just because Cliff has been a head coach and it's different when you have a guy in there who has sat in that chair and made those decisions, that head coaching chair and had to, you know, make calls. And it's, it's different to be able to have a guy like that in your room and be able to bounce ideas off and get ideas and just have that little extra expertise, you know, going through and being a head coach at, you know, two different levels, obviously at the NFL and then at the college level as well, which is where, you know, we are operating now with this, this relationship. So it just, I think it just means a little bit more just having a guy who has also been a head coach, which is what Saban done as as you have mentioned with multiple guys who have head coach had had head coaching opportunities, burnout, fallout, whatever, and then come back and go through that kind of rehabilitation process. Yeah, and those guys, you know, there was a rehabilitation process, no pun intended, with guys like Steve Sarkeesian and trying to. Kind of revitalized their careers to some extent. Tosh Kapoy was coming away from uh, recruiting violations and issues and things. So, you know, Clint Kinsbury is not coming from that situation. You know, he got fired from an NFL team and he was one of the youngest head coaches in the NFL. It's like, okay, sure, fine. Um, I think, you know, certainly with NFL franchises, it's a lot different. I mean, these guys learn that hey, you know, you take that job because it's an incredible opportunity and certainly it's potentially a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's why Lane Kiffin 
jumped at the Raiders job. He knew well enough that Al Davis was going to control that franchise and that Al Davis just wanted him to basically be his offensive coordinator to be able to run personnel and to be able to make all the impactful decisions on the team and not have anybody push back on him. That was a, you know, NFL life or a guy that had been around, um, you know, jokes on you, Al Davis, rest in peace, but you know, you're not going to make Lane Kiffin do anything. He may be young, but he's a guy that obviously comes from a family with a, a long coaching pedigree and his father had been in the NFL for a long time and he knew what time it was. And so, you know, you saw the conflict there and how that went down and no coach really wants to be a part of that, but it's a matter of options. And certainly, you know, some coaches have more options than the others, but I think that comes into a play a lot when we start talking about, you know, where Lincoln goes after USC. If, if USC is not the end stop for him, and the NFL comes a calling, it's not just going to be any NFL program. And people often cite him not going to the Cowboys or entertaining interest from the Cowboys. And I don't know to what level that interest was. They often say, well, he could have just gone to the Cowboys from Oklahoma if he wanted to go to the NFL. But again, that's a situation that would have been akin to Lane Kiffin leaving USC as a coordinator, to some extent. I mean, obviously, Lane Kiffin was just, I think at that point, co-coordinator at USC. Steve Sarkeesian was the first guy offered the job by Al Davis. And Steve Sarkeesian said, no, nah, thanks, but no thanks. He said, hey, I know a guy. He's a really great offensive coordinator, great mind. He's really been the guy that's helped kind of build this offensive system. His name is Lane Kiffin. You might know his dad, Monty. It's over in Tampa. Why don't you give him a call? And so that's how that went. Steve Sarkeesian Pinagles his way to being just the co not from co-coordinator to the offensive coordinator at USC and Lane jumps to the Raiders job. But again, that was a job where, you know, Al Davis was going to have total control and basically dictate how that franchise is going to be run. The same thing would be true of the Dallas Cowboys. And knowing that you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, Christian Torino, I know that you understand that Jerry Jones is a Jerry guy world. He's a little bit meddling, you know, into <laughs> the player personnel and, how he builds his team and how his team is run. And I'm sure Lincoln Riley being a guy that has options looked at that and said, you know, if I go to the NFL, I want to have some control over what goes on. And that was the same thing with Pete. Pete got job offers. The Dolphins came calling. It took somebody to come along and say, Hey Pete, we're going to give you some general manager uh, responsibilities. And you're going to have some control over the draft. You're going to have control over free agency and you're going to be able to uh, pick the players you want, which is something he never had in the NFL in his two previous jobs. And so, you know, that's usually kind of the deal breaker for, for a lot of coaches. And Cliff Kingsbury is another guy that didn't come from that. He wasn't able to probably have as much say over, uh, you know, how his team was built and what have you. I'm sure, you know, with Kyler Murray, he had some type of uh, in, uh, input on, on that you know, aspect of, of recruiting a quarterback. But that was kind of a, a little bit of a no-brainer there for that particular draft uh, where they were. But, um, you know, he's coming from a, a good situation, a, a, an interesting situation for him being so young and having uh, that NFL tenure under his belt. And so he saw a lot. And, and to me, you know, the first question for, for Cliff Kingsbury is, you know, how has that changed your philosophy offensively? What seeing the NFL game and how it works. And this goes back to you know, Rob Gronkowski. We talked about this a couple weeks ago where Gronk was 
uh, on the sidelines of that Arizona game, I made the comment about how lateral the game was, you know, how horizontal the college game was compared to the NFL. And that is something that would be interesting to hear from Cliff. How do you uh, see that? Do you agree with that? Is that something that, you know, it has adjusted or changed schematically your thinking, your philosophy on play calling and play design? Do you now see yourself being a guy that wants to do things a little differently in terms of your route concepts, how much you run the football, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that, you know, Lincoln Riley doesn't have, right? Lincoln Riley has the head coaching experience. He has more big game experience, uh, certainly, you know, coaching at a, at a bigger program and recruiting at a higher level. All of that stuff is Lincoln Riley's very familiar with. That's what he brings to the table for USC. And that's why he has that credibility and why a guy like Cliff Kingsbury says, hey, you know what? I, I want to be a part of the staff, even if it's just a support staff role. Uh, but the one thing that Cliff brings to the table, and, and this is a big deal, is the NFL side. Now, you did mention something that is very important to kind of reiterate. Uh, Will Harrington, or Herringer, excuse me. Herringer, yeah. He, Herringer was um, a, a, a guy that, from what we heard, uh, Caleb Williams was very high on. Uh, he had worked, I believe, with Russell Wilson uh, in Seattle and uh, was a guy that did come from the pros. And he was a, a kind of a, a, a low-key hire and not one that a lot of people really knew about or talked about, but it was pretty big hire for USC. And I think it was pretty big for Caleb Williams. And so that's an interesting transition there. You know, that's something that uh, obviously, you know, this is, it, it's a, it's a win for USC and you're getting a guy that's actually been a head coach. Uh, and now he gets to be in the room with Caleb Williams and Caleb gets to pick his brain and Caleb again, gets to see things, you know, from a future standpoint in, in, in tailoring his game. So he is that much more prepared for the NFL. So I think um, it's definitely a, a win for USC, but it's also a, a, a win for Cliff Kingsbury. I think this is a great fit for him. This is, again, somewhere he wanted to be. He had choices. I'm sure he could have gone other places. He could have been, you know, a full-time coach somewhere else. Uh, and he didn't need to be. And so he decided, hey, I, I want to go somewhere where I feel like um, it's going to help me uh, career-wise uh, in, in the longer run, uh, but also somewhere where I'm going to enjoy my time. Because clearly, just away from football, you know, we heard a lot of things were drawing him to USC back when Clay Helton was going to hire him as a head coach. Or excuse me, a office coordinator. Let me steer the conversation slightly away from the talk of Lincoln Riley and NFL so we can talk some of these uh, USC fans off the ledge. I just wanted to touch on potentially the recruiting impact of bringing a guy like Cliff Kingsbury on to the staff. Where does Cliff's impact come with recruiting? And doesn't he have to maybe be around longer than a year for that impact to actually, you know, have meaning? Yes and no. I say yes, because you build relationships in recruiting. And if we're talking from a high school standpoint, yeah, over time, that's a bigger deal when you're trying to land big fish. However, on the flip side, this is, you know, bigger than just Cliff Kingsbury. Once again, it's USC bringing in competent, qualified if not overqualified people to be able to help at the most important position on the football field so that's a precedent that's been made you know even with will herringer that's a very good hire that's a good guy to have on your support staff who has 
a lot of experience and expertise and has worked one-on-one with some of the best players uh, that are in football. And now you bring in a guy that has that plus head coaching experience. And so when you walk in to the room with Dylan Royola and you're saying, listen, this is what we can do for you from a development standpoint, it doesn't get any better than that. And, And this is something, again, just reiterating on the specific topic of Dylan Riola, USC has done everything they can to recruit him and put all their cards on the table. And they got a full house, man. And it's like, listen, you either want it or you don't want it. And there's just nothing more you can really say or do. I think Dylan Riola was on campus when Cliff was in those team meetings. Now, it wasn't official. We didn't know for 100% if he was going to be a part of the staff or not. I still think he had some lines out to some other jobs and was just kind of trying to figure it out, really. I think he was just trying to figure out, you know, do I, do I want to get back on the grind and, and get into a full-time job and do something uh, maybe, you know, even still at the NFL level, or do I want to kind of do this thing with USC and, and see where that goes? Because that's kind of, you know, that seems the most intriguing. There's, there's something about that, I think, that, that really lured him to USC. and so. Yeah, if you're Dylan Riola and you're sitting in the room and it's like, okay, well, you know, how long is Cliff Kingsbury going to be here? Well, how long was Will Herringer there? Well, he was there for, you know, like a year. Okay, cool. And, and who did they get in to replace him? Uh, Cliff Kingsbury. Okay, cool. So do you think the next guy after Cliff Kingsbury leaves? Because he'll leave, or, you know, if he's not, you know, the, the next guy that's going to be a coach or coordinator or what have you. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But again, It's the system. We're building a system here. This is bigger than just one guy. This is how you build a winning championship program. You know and have confidence that USC is going to bring in somebody else. And and by the way, Lincoln Riley is there regardless, even if you're talking about different staff members and this guy's coming, this guy's going. So at the quarterback position, in terms of player development, and this is one of, if not the top factors, that we're talking about when it comes to recruiting at this point, every single player, every single top four-star, five-star guy you've talked to, player development, getting ready to NFL is the number one thing they talk about, always. And so does it get any better than Cliff Kingsbury and Lincoln Riley? I mean, look at the Heisman Trophy winners. Look at the first-round draft picks. Look at the guys playing in the NFL. I mean, it's a long list of very established successful quarterbacks and that's at the college level and the nfl level at various different programs texas a&m houston texas tech oklahoma so you know from that standpoint it's still right here right now very very impactful and the chance to be able uh to be a part of that system okay which again bigger than just you know the coach that's there right now it's it's also the coach that's going to be there in the future and the coach after him that is something special and something that USC is offering that is unique. And so I think it does have a big impact, uh, regardless of how long Cliff Kingsbury stays at USC. Now, you know, we hope he stays longer than he did the first time. Um, that would obviously not be a good look for him, and it would not be a good look for USC. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that it shows USC is very, very serious about, you know, having the qualified, competent people in there uh, to be able to coach these guys up and, and give them, you know, a, a lot of good direction and, again, develop them, not just for championships 
at the college level before the NFL. That's huge. And just to reiterate kind of that resume of quarterbacks, that's Baker Mayfield, Johnny Manziel, Kyler Murray, Caleb Williams. All four of those guys are Heisman winners. That's four of the last nine Heisman winners between these two guys. There's also Jalen Hurts, <coughs> excuse me, and Patrick Mahomes. So all of those guys were first-round draft picks outside of Jalen Hurts, who was a second-round pick, and Caleb Williams, because obviously he's still in college, but he is a projected number one overall pick. And the two guys that didn't win the Heisman on this list, well, they just played each other in the Super Bowl. So, yeah, it's quite a quarterback resume between these two. And we had someone on the uh, Peristyle podcast kind of get miffed that we brought up Johnny Menzel using him, but he literally won a Heisman under Cliff Kingsbury. Like, it doesn't matter what he did in the NFL. He won a Heisman at the college level. That's what that's what matters in this equation. Yeah, those two coaches between them, Cliff Kingsbury and Lincoln Riley, have certainly covered not only college football and the NFL, because again, you know, you can mention a guy like Johnny Menzel and say, well, he didn't translate to the NFL. Okay, fine. But what about Patrick Mahomes? What about Jalen Hurts? What are, <laughs> I mean, these are guys that are good players in the NFL. They have been successful in the NFL. Um, you know, Kyler Murray has been successful in the NFL as well. Yeah, not a championship Super Bowl contending team, but he's been pretty good. So yeah. the transition there to the system that they're teaching at the college level and how it adapts to the NFL is there. They understand the formula. They get it. And so that is huge itself. The fact that you can connect with any of those guys. Again, we'll use Dylan Rayola because he's uncommitted right now. He's deciding between USC, Georgia, and Nebraska. Oregon is kind of in there as well. He is supposed to be in town this weekend, and he's going to be working out uh, with his quarterback trainer, and we'll see if he ends up on campus for USC spring game. If he doesn't, then he's kind of saying, I like you, but maybe I don't like you like that. We're going to see. You know, it's one of those things where a lot of people are feeling like, you know, Georgia's got the momentum. Georgia's got the momentum. Now, right after the Georgia trip, we didn't hear anything about a silent commitment to Georgia or that he had canceled future trips to other schools. And from USC standpoint, I certainly haven't got the, uh-oh, uh, sources are a little bit kind of, clueless as to what's going to happen next sort of thing there is some still i think uh, from people in those circles of feeling like you know he's going to be back on campus at usc he's going to give usc a look that you know those those official visits are probably still going to happen and there's not going to be an abrupt commitment out of nowhere between now and then and, and again that's a read and you know those reads have not always been great you know, we could talk about the Aaron Flowers uh, commitment to Oregon if you want to at some point during the podcast as well. And that was one of those, you know, sort of things where I think there was a lot of confidence coming from USC's uh, standpoint. And, um, you know, that ended up going wrong. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that um, all the cards are on the table for USC. It doesn't really get any better from a quarterback standpoint. And you can talk about, well, you know, Georgia won national championships and, and, and Georgia is uh, producing lots of great players and Georgia this and Georgia that. And I totally understand that. 
100%. But there was also, not too long ago, a lot of criticism about how Kirby Smart was using the quarterbacks and, and what he was doing and, and how they were doing it and the offense they were running. And, you know, they were able to sort that out. But it's not necessarily a system that has produced well at the quarterback position. And that's the key thing. You know, that's what Teal and Riola plays. So you can talk all you want about defensive linemen and linebackers and, and the, the, the speed in the SEC and the players that get drafted in the SEC. But if you don't play that position, it doesn't necessarily translate to you. And so, you know, with USC, this is obviously a big deal uh, for that particular position and, you know, how it is developed uh, here now and then going forward. And being able to also, something we don't talk about, is tap in, you know, those coaches being able to tap in to Patrick Mahomes, uh, Kyle Murray, uh, getting those guys on campus to, to work out a little bit, to throw around, to do some things, to, you know, maybe just, um, you know, on the weekend, you know, a little private throw around and, and say, hey, yeah, you know what, my, uh, my guy here, Caleb, you know, uh, my guy here, Malachi Nelson, um, you know, he wanted to, 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 to pick your brain and, and throw the football around a little bit. You don't think Cliff Kingsbury can make that call? You don't think Lincoln Riley can make that call? And if those guys are available, they'll be in L.A. to do that? I mean, that helps you during the offseason tremendously. You know, yeah, I'm waiting for the have... Patrick Mahomes, Caleb Williams shot this summer from uh, Howard Jones Field working out together. I'm waiting for that. Yeah, that, that's very much a, a, a possibility. Be surprised if something like that didn't happen. You know, that's I mean, heck, how do you I mean, how would you recruit against that picture? You know, I mean, how do you how do you recruit against that? But again, it's like, listen, you know, square pig round hole. Some guys are just not meant to be at some places. And and you just sort of say, hey, you know what? It's OK. You know, you I don't think. At that position, and, and this is almost extending to the offense in general, I don't think there's a lot of worries. You know, I don't think there's a lot of hand-wringing that goes on because of this guy or that guy because, again, you've got a proven commodity. This is not Clay Helton. This is not somebody that's a first-time head coach. This is not somebody that hasn't done it elsewhere, had all kinds of issues elsewhere. There's a formula here. It's been done, and it's been done over and over again to the point where it's like it's going to work itself out. It's going to be okay. If it comes through the portal, then it comes through the portal. If it comes out of the high school ranks, it comes out of the high school ranks. That's not the big question, not the big issue. You know, what USC fans want to know, what's going on with that front seven? That's, that's the question. That, that's the, the feeling, I think, and the, the, the angst that is there is, you know, how do we supplement the front seven on the defense? How do we get better there? This is great. It's fine. It's dandy. It helps us keep being good at something that we're already very good at, which is important. You know, you don't want to lose uh, the dominance that you have on, 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 on one side of the ball. But you do want to see how in the world you can improve and get better at other aspects to, to be able to bring your overall success rate, you know, get you over. I don't want to say a hump because it was year one, but get you to that point where you go from being a, a good program, exciting program that, uh, you know, people are, are talking about because of the offensive output to a program that is dominating and able to go up against anybody and win any game they play uh, because overall they are balanced on both sides of the football. So be on the lookout for Dylan Riola, the number one overall prospect in 2024. We'll see if he's out there at the Coliseum. I'll be out there at the Coliseum for the spring game. But if he's there, consider that a very good sign. Gerard, Let's say we move on to the next topic, which dives into high school recruiting. 
where USC hosted a pretty sort of hyped up event over the weekend, which we, if you are listeners of this podcast, dubbed the Holy Hour because it was held over Easter weekend, but it was dubbed the Baller Bash was the official title. We like Holy Hour better, but we are not in charge of naming things there at USC. We wish we were, but the Baller Bash was held. It was kind of like this giant pool party at the pool over there. You know, you had the, the Saturday scrimmage at the Coliseum. Lots of players took photos in the, the uniforms at the Coliseum, so they were using that Coliseum part of that recruiting tool. So, but in the end, leading up to it, the Holy Hour Baller Bash maybe lost a little bit of that luster that it was uh, hyped up to be that, you know, we have been talking about it for a couple months at least going into that, you know, April 8th was that date. People were talking about, okay, we're coming in April 8th. Okay, we're going to come in April 8th. And we had this kind of running list of, of guys who were talking about coming out and, you know, kind of lost a little bit of that, had some guys drop out, talk about, you know, oh, we're not going to make it out. Obviously, Andrew Sprague, ended up not making it out, made his commitment to Michigan the day before the official date of the Baller Bash. So he was going to be a big visitor for that. So, you know, took took a little bit of a, a drop in uh, pedigree of the, the event in terms of who was able to make it out. You know, guys still were able to make it out. I think the most significant visitor at this point was Carrollton, Georgia, 2026 quarterback Julian Lewis making it back for his second unofficial visit to the Trojans. If you're not familiar with Julian Lewis, he is hailed as the number one quarterback prospect in 2026, arguably the number one overall prospect in the class. You know, it was kind of a similar to a Dylan Rayola kind of situation as the number one QB and number one overall prospect. USC offered him. Uh, Lincoln Riley has made him his guy for 2026 in terms of recruiting. Had an incredible year as a, as a freshman in uh, Georgia. I believe he won the state title, something like that, a, a bunch of yards. So he, he's a dude and made his second unofficial visit out to USC, you know, building that relationship. So he was probably the, the headliner for this baller bash. And he is a 2026. So that, that's an interesting way to interpret that. Like your top guy on campus was a 2026. You know, you, you were hoping maybe it's a 2024. But to get him on was, you know, a good deal. But some guys did not end up making it out to the baller bash. Yeah, I mean, I think having the McKinney uh, teammates out, you know, Brian Jackson is obviously someone who is going to be making a decision here in a couple weeks. Uh, the six foot, 240 pound running back from McKinney, Texas. Uh, his teammate, I believe, did make it uh, five star safety, Xavier uh, Villami, I think is how we pronounce his, his last name. We kind of went back and forth on that. Um, and so those guys would obviously be uh, a big players. And, and certainly with USC missing out on Aaron Flowers, uh, the six-foot, 200-pound safety from Forney, Texas, a, a four-star who was picking between USC, Oklahoma, uh, Oregon. And um, it was interesting because we had our podcast, I think the day before uh, he actually made that decision and then had spoken to a few sources. Uh, some some folks on the coaching staff there at Forney and got the vibe like Oregon was maybe the team to beat, that uh, he had a really good relationship with Chris Hampton, who is now the co-coordinator uh, up at uh, Oregon. I think he's also the defensive backs coach. 
and he's coming over from Tulane and had recruited uh, that area of Texas uh, the last uh, two different coaching stops that he's had. He was Tulane, I think he was uh, uh, Arkansas State or Central Arkansas as well. And so uh, they lose out on that player who is a bit of that tweener. Uh, we talked about that hybrid safety cornerback that they've been trying to recruit for the past really two cycles, if you're including this one as well, uh, going back to Braxton Myers and uh, Warren Roberson, uh, Tyler Scott, et cetera, all those players that are guys that were rated as safeties but played cornerback in high school and were basically being uh, recruited either by Dante Williams as a boundary corner or as uh, by Alex Grinch as a kind of nickelback. And that's sort of where Aaron Flowers was falling into. But I had previously talked about sort of the versus, you know, Aaron Flower versus the field, who else USC is recruiting at the safety position. And I felt like Philami was uh, definitely heads above most of those players, just athletically. I mean, this is a guy that's, I think, just recently ran a 10-5 in the 100 meters. You see that speed on film. You see a lot more suddenness. Uh, a guy that is certainly a bit more of a safety in terms of his experience on the field. He doesn't play a whole lot of cornerback or elsewhere on the defensive backfield, but nevertheless um, is athletically a little more of that sort of SEC type corner that you see with the speed and the size and the range to be able to play sideline to sideline from a single high spot. So definitely good uh, to get him on campus along with Brian Jackson. Um, we'll see what USC does here uh, in the in the coming weeks with Brian Jackson. Again, I think it's April 21st is when he said that he wants to make a decision. Or he didn't actually say that outright, but sources have told us that is a commitment date for him. So that will be interesting to see if USC is able to get one down and then kind of work on uh, Xavier as well. They also had Isaiah Garcia, who came in, uh, I believe, Saturday after uh, unofficially visiting UCLA Friday. And uh, that's a big uh, four-star offensive guard from Utah. And we'll see, you know, where USC goes with him. Obviously, from an offensive line standpoint, USC has some good options. I mean, they have some good options locally. Uh, they have some good options just up and down the West Coast. And so it looks like they have the opportunity to kind of be able to get another very good full offensive line class from the high school ranks. Now, they supplemented that very good offensive line class they got out of high school with some good offensive linemen from the portal as well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, with uh, the amount of turnover that they have coming from that junior class, uh, because it's really junior heavy at USC right now after next year. Um, if some of those guys leave early, if there's some more attrition, I mean, we'll get into that when we talk about this second window of the portal. But nevertheless, um, the offensive line class this year, combined with last year, again, that's kind of why we feel like in terms of, what USC wants to do offensively, they can become much more physical and much more dominating up front because they are getting some very talented offensive linemen uh, from last class and then the potential of what they could sign with this class with DeAndre Carter, Brandon Baker, uh, and guys like Isaiah Garcia. Yeah, USC obviously had a very good 2023 recruiting cycle when it comes to offensive linemen. Did have a couple of misses. We talked about that. But between the high school class that they signed with those five guys and the portal guys that they were able to get to get uh, in terms of offensive linemen, you know, Josh Henson and, you know, Lincoln Riley did a really, really good job there. So you're excited as a USC fan to see what Henson can do to build off that first full cycle that he had in 2023, knowing that 2024 is a big one is a, is a big offensive line potential with, you know, 
uh, Brandon Baker and DeAndre Carter, which Brandon Baker was not at the, the Baller Bash, so not someone who made a visit out there. So you would have liked to have him out there, obviously, for, for the pool party, but he was at uh, other places or did not come. So, again, maybe not the uh, the big, splashy, sexy event that we thought it was going to be when we, when we were talking about this a couple months ago. And still ended up getting, you know, some solid guys on campus, you know, making inroads with a lot of guys, doing all that kind of stuff, getting Julian Lewis on. But, you know, it 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 wasn't what we expected it to be in that in that sense. But still possibly, you know, looking ahead for the summer, this was maybe, you know, kind of like a uh, this is what we thought was going to be like a, a a warm up, the spring warm up to potentially another golden hour type event for the summer when it comes to official visits. Gerard, are you still confident they'll be able to pull off some, they'll still have some sort of major official visit weekend in the summer? Yeah, I definitely think so. I I think right now USC likes the big events. They like to have uh, these big weekends, which is, it's interesting because we've seen at USC with different coaching staffs, a real ebb and flow as to the philosophical approach to how you want to recruit and whether you want to break it up into just consistent small visits or you want to have these bigger events where you kind of put your recruiting effort all into sort of one weekend. And it's not that USC hasn't broken up to some extent. I mean, the opening weekend of spring football, they had a pretty good visitor list. And they've had guys in and out of town kind of throughout, probably not to the extent of last year, but they do have quite an impressive list kind of running of players that have been on campus. This particular event, yeah, you kind of felt it lost a little bit of its luster, but, you know, here's one of the things that is trending at the same time as you're having these bigger events and you're trying to kind of brand them to be able to bring a bunch of good players together, try to work you know, your strategy for recruiting off of Synergy is that there are kids getting paid to take visits. And a lot of it has to do with the club outfits and them getting in touch with collectives and collectives actually paying quite a bit of money. And I don't have any receipts to really reiterate or repeat the type of dollar amounts that I've been told. But they've got a lot of kids that are going on tours and those schools are collectives because the schools themselves cannot directly pay any money for such a thing. They are paying to get these kids on campus. And again, this is something that we are in the infancy of the NIL era and the regulations and the rules of such things are still being interpreted (laughs) as we've seen them. But it's getting harder and harder, and it's going to be harder and harder to get some of these top guys on campus to take unofficial visits because you're basically going to have to make them like official visits, plus some from what I'm hearing. And you have certain guys that are very open about coach. Um, I want to come check out your campus, but I need you to bring my grandma. I need you to bring my mom. I need you to bring my stepdad, my coach, my sisters. And go down the line of all these people I need playing tickets to. I need them to have the hotel room. And coach, I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need to hear, you know, like the dollar amount of how much money you're going to give me up front 
to potentially commit to your team. And there are definitely some stories out there. And again, you know, it's not verified stuff, and I don't want to just gossip, but I've heard it from You're saying unsubstantiated rumors. Oh, yeah, well, I've heard it from high school coaches talking to college coaches that are bitching about it. Like, man, we can't really even get a conversation going with some of these guys because they're talking about, well, coach, you know, you know, my 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 trainer says or my dad says, you know, I need this amount of money to be able to go see you guys. Like, we need to know that you're serious. And then I'll show you that I'm serious sort of thing. And so there have definitely been some instances that I think some of these schools have come across where it's like, okay, we got you coming in for this unofficial visit. And then as the unofficial visit gets closer, somebody else in that circle calls the coaches in the school and says, hey, you know, we want to make it out, but this is what we need from you. And all of a sudden that puts the brakes on things real quick. And so this is, Again, just part of the sort of modern day recruiting where you have to take this into account. And there's some schools that are doing it. There's some collectives that are doing it. And they are paying kids up front for various different things, including visits and commitments. And, you know, whether that's a sustainable uh, uh, way to recruit is, a, is another kind of can of worms. I don't think it is from the money that I'm hearing being tossed around. Uh, but nevertheless, it's like, you know, get the getting, get, get the getting while the getting is good in terms of the rules. And, you know, eventually there'll be some regulation and this is not going to be sustainable because it's not going to be legal. And there will be ways that uh, the NCAA somehow steps in or somebody steps in to regulate it. So just for the time being, let's be as aggressive as we possibly can and try to get as many kids as we can through this, you know, system. And, uh, and then we'll see where the cards fall where they may, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make something happen out of, uh, being able to stack some of these recruiting classes, what have you. Obviously, we've seen some schools do that. And then we've also seen some schools, without naming names, lose a bunch of recruits the year after. So again, sustainable? Is it, is it, you know, is that, does that work? Like how do the boosters in that collective feel when you're paying a bunch of money for guys to show up and have a good spring game and then leave the next year? Like that doesn't seem like it's worth that much money. And it's worth that investment. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, there's still a, a lot of that going on right now. Uh, but it's April. It's April. You know, and a lot of people are like, well, where are all the commitments from? What, you know, what, what, when are we getting them? Like, what's, what's happening? How come we only have one commitment in the 2024 class? You know, Georgia has this many. Alabama has this many. Clemson has this many. But you know what? It, it is April. And seeing how things went last year and knowing in the back of our heads, because everybody has to always keep this in the back of their head. This is the difference between the Pete Carroll era and how USC recruited after 11 games. And this era is that you have the portal. And I really am starting to believe that USC feels very comfortable with going into the portal and depending on the portal being a regular part of the recruiting cycle for them. Right. It is. It is. When you're talking about NIL, it is definitely the more proven commodity in terms of the type of players you can go after. And if you're wanting to invest, you know, high school kids, even the best high school kids, sometimes there's a little more reaching and a little more projection going on there. Now I know that there's a five-star guys and there's those top players and maybe the conversation changes for a guy that's, you know, a high level five-star guy at a particular position of need. But for the majority of those type of kids, and they start coming in and talking about they need this, they need that, 
in order to just visit you or or to 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 look at you seriously you're looking at the port owner going there's going to be a guy in there that's going to be a three-year starter at a power five school that has stats and, and everything behind them that we can bring in and we know he's going to contribute immediately and you know how long we have to recruit him for two weeks as opposed <laughs> to recruiting some high school kid for three years and then you know at the end of the day decides okay i'm going to go to another school because they threw an nil deal at me so yeah this is definitely a different era from that standpoint and it's affecting everything even down to unofficial visits i'm really like blowing the uh this transition you're setting me up for by talking about transfer portal and usc you know being comfortable in the transfer portal recruiting you're i'm really fumbling the transition you set me up for to switch segments but i just had a last minute question that just popped in my head that i was interested about you talking about you know it's April. This is different from, you know, Pete Carroll team coming off 11 wins, you know, in the NIL space. Just jumping back like 20 years ago, let's say USC had just come off this 11 win season. And or just like how many commitments would USC have right now if you're going back to like 2006 or 2005 after Probably like between were kids committing early then is my question. Probably between six and eight. Not a lot. Not a lot. Okay. They didn't like to go into double digits coming out of the summer. Now, again, okay. different time from the standpoint of not having an early signing day. And so, you know, not as many kids made early decisions. And you had the back end of the holidays in the January to really put a, most of your official visit dates. So L.A. in January, it's nice, you know, compared to other parts of the country. And so they backloaded the official visits for that particular time. They in most of the bigger recruiting weekends, if USC brought in 15 guys, if they brought in 12 guys on a weekend, it was going to be in January. You would have the Notre Dame or UCLA weekend would be big and then it would be a weekend in January. Those would be the two big recruiting weekends for USC. And so the early signing period and having a bunch of uh, official visits during the summer, definitely a detriment to USC because, you know, during the summer, yeah, it's hot and humid down south and what have you, but it's not the same as, you know, when it's, you know, late November or January in in Ann Arbor and you're recruiting against Michigan or you're recruiting against Ohio State or even, you know, some places in the south, it gets cold and it might snow there. And so the weather is just (laughs) not cooperative on an official visit weekend. Now, granted, I think I've told this story before, but there was one weekend where USC was recruiting. And I want to say, I'm just going to say it was the class of 2008. And it was a big recruiting weekend. It was like the second weekend of January, which was one of their big recruiting weekends. They had a bunch of guys on campus and they had Ronald Jones on campus. Now, not Ronald Jones from Texas, not the running back, but Ronald Jones from Muskegon, Michigan. And he's out there and it's this weekend where it rains. It's like a bad, just one of those one-off weekends in Southern California where it's like uh, El Nino. I don't know what was going on, but it was pouring cats and dogs during practice. And this was back in the day when, you know, we could watch practices and we were watching the bull practice and they had all these recruits there. And I think like it was like Chris Calippo and maybe Deontay Thompson, who was uh, out of Bell Glades, Florida. Um, They had a bunch of guys that were top guys, you know? And so 
I'm sitting there and I'm watching these kids just kind of observe them interact with the coaching staff during practice, walk around practice with their parents. And I'm watching Ronald Jones, or excuse me, Ronald Johnson from afar, who, um, you know, is, is sitting by himself on a cart and it's just raining and he's just chilling there. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like, why is not anybody like going up and talking to him or, or interacting with him? I mean, you just, I don't know. I, I was just like, that does, that's not a good look. Like the body language, I'm like, that kid's not going to USC. Like, what are you talking about? And, um, you know, he's from Michigan and, and everybody's saying, you know, it's probably going to be Michigan State. Michigan's trying to make a late run at him. And uh, lo and behold, he committed to USC. And it was one of those sort of like it went against everything that I've learned and that I thought, you know, with recruiting. And um, it was it was a horrible rainy weekend and uh, they ended up getting him. And it was, you know, one of the bigger gets, you know, five star. Uh, he was actually rated as a quarterback. Uh, we were with rivals at that point and he was rated as a cornerback, but ended up playing wide receiver at USC. And uh, it was pretty good. A lot of people I talked to, you know, back in the Midwest always wonder like what would have happened if he would have played cornerback because they did feel like that was ultimately his best position. But US, he wanted to play wide receiver, and USC was like, all right, we'll, we'll bring you in as a wide receiver. And Pete always loved his wide receivers, even if he was giving them up as defensive backs, um, played them at, at wide receiver. So, yeah, I mean, we, we think about, you know, the, the weather and all these other aspects. You know, sometimes there are other factors that come into play uh, that are a big deal that, that, that are, you know, important to these kids. And so, you know, uh, the the – the early signing period, while it has certainly given a lot of the schools in the Midwest and other places where it's like, you know, you go to Oregon during the summer, it's beautiful. But you go to Oregon in, you know, late October, November, and it's like, hey, it's going to be raining and overcast and kind of dreary. Um, it, that doesn't always matter to kids. That's just not a big deal. Um, you know, when you get to the NFL, you're not going to be able to choose where you're living. So you kind of have to adjust anyways. Can you just make like a quick transfer portal reference just so I can go back to having a thing to springboard off into our next segment? Well, back then, USC didn't have to worry so much about transfers. I mean, that's one thing that you think about the Pete Carroll teams. You know, would it hurt or helped USC uh, with that run being able to get transfers? I think it would have helped because Pete Carroll himself was just a fantastic recruiter. Uh, they got some very good transfers back when the transfers actually had to sit a year. Uh, guys like Loka Tatupu, who, you know, came from Maine, was a guy that played quarterback. And they brought him in, and, and nobody really knew anything about Lofa. And he was kind of a smallish middle linebacker. You know, he looked fast and everything, but the guy ended up being, you know, a, a top-flight player, played a bunch of years in the NFL, and was, it was just tremendous. So I think from an evaluation standpoint and sort of the energy level and, and just how they did things under Pete Carroll, I think a lot of guys would have wanted to been a part of that program. And it would have been interesting, you know, from the high school standpoint, how they balance that, you know, do you keep going after these guys in high school um, or, or do you go more to the portal? I think for sure those classes that they did recruit would have looked a lot different on the back end. I mean, they didn't like to recruit over 18 guys per class. They really like to spread it out and sort of save some rides and, and have some wiggle room. Um, it would have been different. There would have been some guys that wouldn't have ended up at USC because back then, because you didn't have, the early signing period. I mean, you did technically because you had early enrollees back then, but not an actual early signing period. There were guys that got offers in, in December, in January, where they're just trying to round out the class. If there was a transfer portal, no, they would have went right after whoever was in the transfer portal and, 
you would have seen some guys coming over from from other Pac-12 programs and and other places, and they would have just filled those roles. So you would have really wondered, like, what would USC's defense look like against Vince Young in that Rose Bowl? You know, it wouldn't have looked like it did. They would have probably went out and they, and they got some good linebackers that were young, but they would have probably recruited right over them and brought in at least a couple guys that would have been top flight guys that were already established other places that they knew they could come in and start right away. So you probably, you know, with those injuries, you probably would have been able to still feel the team that, you know, defensively was, was, was not such an Achilles heel for USC. Gerard, I'm so glad that you organically brought up the transfer portal so that it allows me to jump into our next topic. And that is the second transfer portal window that is going to be opening up on Saturday. USC were quote unquote, if we're talking about like a trade deadline, they were buyers in the first portal window. They picked up, you know, obviously not as many signees as they did in 2022 when they were, they needed so many bodies just to fill out the roster and get through the 2022 season. The first window was more about, you know, being able to pick and choose who they wanted. Starter level guys, they can come in and add to the roster instead of building it completely around the roster. So USC still has a couple spots where they can fill in some talent. And we're going to see, you've already started to see the portal decorations picking up. You know, you can't officially enter in the portal until Saturday. But a lot of guys have started to, you know, get those tweets ready, shine them off. You know, I I intend to enter the transfer portal when it when it's available. So we're already starting to see that this week. It should be a busy, busy week of transfers and going on and comings and going and who's offering and who's following, who's getting on campus. Because as we've talked about many times, the transfer portal moves very, very quickly here in this day and age. And it's going to be open for about 15 days, I believe. So things are going to move fast. And we're going to see USC put the finishing touches on this roster. You know, they have some guys, the freshmen coming in in the spring, or excuse me, the summer. And then we'll possibly see a couple more names come onto the board for this roster and see where their needs are, where USC feels their needs are after spring camp. We're not going to get into like a ton of names. You know, we'll know more once the portal opens and who's actually jumping in. Because again, it all depends on who's actually going into it. You know, you can hear things in the background like, I think this person might be jumping in, you know, could this person be jumping in, you know, but it does not matter unless you actually enter the portal. So we're going to see starting on Saturday, who is actually about that Porter business and who is going to get in the portal. Gerard, I wrote a little bit of an article on Wednesday where I outlined maybe four positions I thought USC should address or could address with this second portal window. I don't know if you want to walk through it, get uh, or I get maybe your position groups that you think the USC should address with the second window, but you can start anywhere you want in terms of your thoughts on this second critical window. During the first porthole window, there was 1,285 players who entered. So you have to think there's a lot of those players that are still in the portal right now. Not everybody is obviously signed or committed to other programs and enrolled. Um, so, you know, the stars of the second window, because everybody gets very focused on the first window. It's like, oh, my gosh, this, these are the guys that are available. These guys we have to get. Um, last year in May, 
Jordan Addison and Eric Gentry are two players that USC got after spring ball. So Eric Gentry was at the spring game. It was his official visit at the spring game. Very much potential that they could have some heavy hitters that still join the program uh, in the coming months, you know, which is crazy, you know, that that, uh, you, you have spring ball behind you. And I think last year it was different feeling because you still had the transition with Lincoln Riley. There felt like there was just a lot of pieces to the puzzle moving around still, even with spring ball. Spring ball was earlier last year. Um, I think they were already done with spring ball uh, by the time that, uh, you know, the, the we get to that sort of April 15th, that evaluation window. Uh, because that's also, by the way, uh, at the first day you have May evaluations. So all of this is is sort of happening at once. And I think, you know, first and foremost, and Lincoln Riley himself has hinted at this much, we got to get better in the front seven of the defense. And he's almost implied like he he's pretty confident they're going to get some good players that are going to be added to the defensive line, particularly. So that is interesting to watch, to see, you know, what level players are there. And we know good interior defensive linemen, man, they do not last long in the portal. Yep. There's not many guys that are impact guys. Uh, there are certainly some players that have teetered and flirted with transferring. And so we're just going to have to see who actually jumps in. But definitely, uh, I, I do think there's going to be some big names. I just think, you know, it happened last year. It seems like most of these programs are starting to feel pretty confident that this is going to happen uh, each cycle, year in and year out. And each window, for that matter, is going to have some marquee players that could change how you play on Saturdays the next season, you know, which is which is pretty big. So. I mean, I, I would just say, first and foremost, defensive line, front seven, um, we're going to see USC expand what they can do there. Now, currently USC has, I believe, 84 players on scholarship, and that's counting uh, the transfer of Cortland Ford, which just broke this week. And so um, that's per the scholarship distribution chart. And, um, you know, obviously, I think there's going to be further attrition uh, so USC is going to have some some room to play around here. They don't have to like get down, you know, ten players. There are some programs right now which are, you know, projecting when you bring in your freshman class going to be over the limit. And yeah. so uh, USC is 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 not too bad off in that regard. Um, but I think you're going to see further attrition, which will give them a little more room to play around and bring in some players at those new positions. And I think um, I. I I, I didn't, unfortunately, get to read your article, but I'm sure defensive line, uh, is particularly the interior defensive line, was probably at the top of the list. And then you kind of just stretch outward uh, from that standpoint. You know, other positions, you know, possibly another cornerback. You know, again, there's evaluation that's gone on with some of these guys that they've had transferred already in for the first window. So now you know what you've got with those players. And some of those guys, hey, maybe they're exceeding expectations. Maybe some of those guys have not met expectations. And you go, geez, you know what? You like this guy, but man, he's got some injuries. He's not really played much. Uh, we, you know, maybe we don't like his work ethic. I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of different things that go on with the evaluation when you've got a guy in your building as opposed to, you know, watching or hearing about him play in another football program. So that in itself, 
you know, you may feel like you were really good at a position, but yeah, we need to go and get another guy and, and see if uh, we can bolster that position even more. Yeah, I don't think we're talking like 10 players or anything. We're talking like just a handful of guys. Are you, are you thinking like the over under is like four and a half? Like, if that's the yeah, line. ish, ish. Um, I, I don't think in halves of football players, but. Sure, sure. Um, half scholarship, half scholarship. Uh, I, I think, um, yeah, like, it, you know, it, 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 it always depends on sort of who's there, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a, 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 an influx of good defensive players and you're just like, we can't say no to this guy and this guy, you got to figure out how you make room. And that's going to be, you know, kind of the first aspect of how cutthroat college football is going to become and how it's going to continue to distance itself away from the amateurism aspect of things. This is, you know, always been a business and it always will be a business, but there are subtle ways of doing things and there's overt ways of doing things. And uh, when, when you are trying to improve your roster and push comes to shove, and you feel like you've got some guys that are more dead weight than anything, and you can go out and get a guy that is going to be, you know, a potential starter for you. Yeah, there's just some some schools are going to shake some guys loose. That's just the way it's going to go. And so, um, you know, the uh, the G5 schools and the Division two schools are going to get better. <laughs> They're going to find some players that trickle down to them. Uh, but these schools that are at the top are going to continue to maneuver to try to bring in as many players uh, as they can. So it, it does depend on the talent pool that's available. And, you know, you are already sort of um, looking at a potential board of sorts of who are the top players in the nation, who have you scouted, who might be, for whatever reason, available that might be transferring, whether it be, you know, people behind the scenes that have reached out, you know, former high school coaches said, hey, wink and a nod. Or it's just one of those things where you look at the situation of a roster and you've got to kind of project and do some evaluation of somebody else's roster to say, all right, you know, I could see where this kid would would want, you know, to to have an opportunity to to play on a bigger stage or or, or what have you. Or, you know, there's some competition here between two guys that were freshmen last year. Whoever is going to win that competition is going to stay and whoever loses is probably going to go. But they may still be a player for your needs and a guy that could, you know, fill the depth chart and, and be a good player for you. There's a lot of that stuff that has to go around. It's very difficult. I mean, we talk about support staff and bringing a guy like Kings, uh, Cliff Kingsbury in and, and how good that is. But you've also got to build out your support staff from guys just doing a lot of grunt work, having to look at a lot of film, like way more film than ever. I mean, you know, grinding on film for high school is one thing. But now you've got to grind on film for, for Division two guys. Uh, from, you know, just like uh, the subdivision guys that are coming out uh, that are that are from smaller school G5 guys. I mean, you've got to know who some of these players are and how good they are and, and, and then hope that you have some type of connection or they uh, when they enter the portal are open enough to give you a chance if you don't have a connection. Right. You know, and we, we talk about like the guys that are already like the high end type guys uh, that are that are transferring out from a power five school. Nine times out of ten, they already got a connection somewhere, and they're already headed somewhere. You know, it's it's right right when they enter the portal, it's like this is the school that's the leader. And it's like, oh, well, twenty four hours later, he's already at that school. Uh, but for some of these other guys, some of these other players that could be very, um, you know, 
advantageous on your on your staff or on your uh, your roster you got to have to kind of do that work but you got to figure out a way to be able to get in there and get your foot in the door to try to get that visit it all happens so fast i mean it's you know a week to two weeks in in most of these cases where that process is is done so yeah you got to you got to have already an understanding some confidence levels with who these players are uh, what they can do for you and then, like I say, you know, on the back end, hope you have already a built-in relationship, or if you don't have one, you can get one. And, the, and that uh, circle of people that are close to that player uh, is open to, to hearing what you have to say. And just to run through my list really quickly, I had defensive tackle at the top of the list, and I've been beating the drum of, like, I think they need at least two more of those guys. But again, we don't know what exactly – pickings will be there when the defensive tackle position. So you at least got to get one. Hopefully there's one guy in there that the stars align for you and get another big body defensive tackle in the mold of like a Keon bars that can come in there and is experienced and has talent to, to, to play, not just some guy down the line for the depth, a guy who can be an impact guy that will go a long way. I have offensive tackle on there just with the the news of Cortland Ford who we're going to talk a little bit more after the break but I think your your tackle depth now is in a a really interesting spot and I think you could just afford to go in there it doesn't have to be like a top number one guy but just somebody who has experience at the power five level who you can have on the team and you know put in in a pinch and, and play left tackle because Portland Ford did bring some good left tackle experience. Or maybe, you know, you're looking at Elijah Page and what he did. You're talking to Josh Henson in that that room, and you're like, what do you think? Do we need another offensive tackle? What do you think of Elijah Page? Do you think he'll be ready to play this year? So they're still doing that evaluations, but I just had offensive tackle up there kind of high. I had pass rusher. Initially, I had it as defensive end, but I guess – in this system, you know, it could be a rush in, it could be a hand in the, the the dirt kind of five technique, defensive end, one of those guys. And, you know, I just think they need more sack production or a guy who had more sack production in 2022. I mean, you know, look at Anthony Lucas, you look at Corey Foreman moving to the defensive line, you get Romello height back, potentially healthy, which you know, could be a, a big boost, assuming the, the shoulder holds up. And you got Jamil Muhammad, you know, uh, experienced linebacker. But between those four guys, Gerard, I'm looking at it, they only have one and a half sack sacks last year between those four guys. And all of them were from Jamil Muhammad. So I just think you need a guy who, you know, maybe had six sacks last year, or seven and a half sacks last year. If someone like that jumps into the portal, I think that's a guy – you kind of go after and get just for a little bit more uh, sack insurance, if you will, just to really, you know, you hope Anthony Lucas, you know, Corey Foreman, those guys, Jamil Muhammad, you know, they they blow up and have very productive years in terms of, you know, getting in the backfield, but you just don't know. And it might help a little bit just to have a guy who has experience taking down the quarterback. And I will say Jamil Muhammad does have seven and a half sacks in his career overall, but just one and a half last year. And then the last thing I had was just safety. It seemed like they really wanted a safety in the 2023 class. I know they have an influx of bodies there, you know, kind of guys like Marion Beavers, uh, uh, Anthony Beavers, excuse me, Exa Marion Gordon, 
kind of those guys at the back end, but I feel like maybe they would want kind of one more veteran guy to bring in and maybe shore up the top end of that group. It also is going to be dependent on who they lose as well, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of changes things. And we look at offensive tackle and uh, they're able to get two offensive tackles uh, out of the portal uh, that are guys that we think are going to be able to play, you know, possibly right away. Um, and Jared Kingston, who looks like he's going to probably play guard. So he's probably going to be an interior player for them, which is a surprise for us considering that he was a left tackle at Washington State. But Michael Turquin is a guy that uh, looks like he's going to at least uh, be able to play on the outside. And so you have some of the young guys that are coming in. Elijah Page is already there on campus and is an offensive tackle. But I think you could definitely bolster your numbers if you can get a guy who's a true tackle. Again, and I think this goes to what you're saying with the rush end position in terms of potential versus production. If you have the right player, if the right name enters the portal, you go get that guy. You know, you you have a, a good amount of p- potential in that list of rush ends. You know, you throw Anthony Lucas there, which again, the hope I think coming in to him transferring was that he was putting on weight to be able to play more as a three technique in the interior rather than trying to lose weight to become a rush end. But it looks like he's trying to do the latter. But you have quite a bit of potential there at that position. Solomon Bird is there. He showed flashes last year. You talked about Jamil Muhammad, uh, Romelo Height. Um, we have the two freshmen coming in and Braylon Shelby and David Peavy, who are both accomplished pass rushers out of the high school ranks. Um, Corey Foreman, who everybody's hoping uh, could be a guy that, um, you know, maybe not so much rush in, uh, but more on the five technique. Uh, but, you know, he's lost a little bit of weight. And he's trimmed down. So, you know, how much is he going to be able to anchor at the five technique where you've got to be a little bigger? you got to be more like a Jack Sullivan uh, than you are going to be sort of a quasi linebacker speed rusher. Um, so that position has some names. It has definitely some talent. But nevertheless, if you can get a guy that is a proven commodity, then you probably step up and want to grab that guy out of the portal and, and bring him into the fray. Uh, but I do think the offensive line uh, position, uh, particularly with the uh, offensive tackle, if you're going to put Kingston inside, still is a spot that you can bring some players into. Um, so it, it's, it's very interesting when you look at it this way, when we talk about uh, NIL. And we talk about the money that is invested in players and paying players. And you look at the high school class uh, of, of, of defensive linemen. Well, let's, let's look at defensive linemen. Let's kind of keep it on the subject of the front seven and say, okay, you, you've had a couple guys that are top guys nationally uh, that have been on campus. And so we'll just look at it from that perspective of players that USC is recruiting that have liked USC enough that they've actually taken unofficial visits to campus. David Stone, 6'4", 275-pound, defensive tackle. He's at IMG, um, originally from, I think, Oklahoma. He's a five-star. He's, uh, I think, last I checked, like number two or number four in the country as a defensive lineman. You have Justin Scott, who was here last fall, uh, uh, 6'5", 310-pound defensive tackle from Chicago, four-star, another top player that nationally took that unofficial visit to USC. USC also had Jericho Johnson on campus uh, about a month ago, 6'4", 300 pounds, from Fairfield, California, a guy that's local. And it seems like, you know, out of those three, probably the the most uh, realistic 
get right now for USC recruiting the defensive line position. But look at those players. You know, you kind of put that in front of you. Say, okay, David Stone, uh, Justin Scott, Jericho Johnson. Okay, you can throw other players in there if you want. But then compare that to Walter Nolan. Okay, 6'4", 310-pound defensive tackle who's at Texas A&M right now, former five-star. He played last year, unlike Anthony Lucas, who didn't really play a whole lot last year. He was a guy that that played in, in several games, had 29 tackles, had a sack. There's some film of him. Now, if you're a collective, if you're a booster and you want to bring players in and, and you're there and you're, you know, a, a part of that NIL process of presenting how much money you can make, et cetera, et cetera, upon enrollment, you know, what, which, which direction do you go? And I would say that if you're a money man and you're an investor of any sorts, you're a businessman and you've got million dollars to spend on this sort of thing, I can see why Walter Nolan, and Walter Nolan, let me make clear, is not in the transfer portal at this moment. Hypothetically, that's the direction that you go. Just because you know he's got a year in the system, he's got his grades together, you can look at his transcripts. You know, he had some offseason stuff that happened a little bit, just like Anthony Lucas, but you have probably a much better projection of where he's going to go and what he's going to be like in your system than you have for any of those high school kids. You know, David Stone was out there playing stand-up defensive end at the pylon five-on-five. So you go, okay, is that what David Stone wants to do? Is that where he wants to play? Does he want to be kind of like Anthony Lucas? Well, we need a guy who's going to put his hand to the ground. He's going to be an interior defensive lineman. That's where we need players. So, again, from a projection standpoint, the investment of NIL I mean, USC money people have always been more about the proven commodity, the sure thing, okay? Pete Carroll was one of the highest rate, I mean, I think he was the highest paid college coach during his run at USC, okay? But, I mean, USC didn't pay that up front, and they sure as hell at that point in time weren't going out to go follow up to pay anybody that kind of money to bring them in. It was like, hey, we're going to have you come in. If you prove that you can win, then you're going to become the guy. The Lincoln-Riley hiring was so much different for USC. I mean, in my lifetime, USC's come nowhere close to even really entertaining such a move. But if you look at it, Lincoln-Riley is a proven commodity. I mean, he won all those games at Oklahoma. Okay, he's been at the highest levels. He's produced Heisman Trophy winners. So, you know, from that standpoint, when you talk about NIL and you talk about the different approaches with all these different collectives, yeah, there are boosters there that are openly talking about just throwing millions of dollars out at recruits uh, before they're even signed. You know, whether it's, you know, a a lure to sign, which again, according to the NCAA, that is, uh, you know, inducement and that is illegal. But nevertheless, uh, there's clearly some contracts and some things that are happening behind the scenes that are getting kids out of high school to go to these colleges. But again, you got to project to some extent. You know, some of these guys you might think are a short bet. You know, Corey Foreman coming out of high school, five-star, number one in the nation. You know, you're going to pay a bunch of money to him up front to go to your school, or do you go after the guy that's already got a year or two under his belt, and he's shown that he's going to be that guy. And maybe he wasn't a five-star coming out of high school. Maybe he was just a three-star, what have you. You know, Jordan Addison wasn't a a big-time recruit coming out of high school. Eric Gentry certainly wasn't a big-time recruit coming out of high school. He was a three-star. He was well thought of, but he was still a three-star. There was still plenty of players, I think 29 linebackers rated ahead of him. 
So, you know, <laughs> you could have put a lot of money into another guy that right now isn't doing a whole lot. And you could have saved that money uh, just waiting a couple years to go after Eric Gentry because he's shown he can do that. So that's another aspect of all this when we get caught up in talking about the recruiting process and everything that's going on with the 2024 class at the high school level and not acknowledging, you know, what is still to come with the transfer portal. Gerard, are you ready to grind for transfer portal season part two? <laughs> I'm always grinding off the grid. Always grinding off the grid. And with that, we are going to take a slight break from grinding on this podcast, but I promise it's only like 10 to 15 seconds, Gerard. So don't have a panic attack. We'll be right back and we'll get back into the grind of this podcast. I don't want to ask you how your break is because of the theme of grinding. You'll tell me, you know, you didn't take a break. No, I, I was just mashing my teeth and headbanging. There you go. Yeah, he was he was even grinding on his time off, which is why we love the dedication of Sir Hurricane on this podcast. Gerard, we're going to stay a little bit on topic still with the transfer portal and talk a little bit about the big transfer from USC that just hit the, the, the news this week. And that is Cortland Ford has opted or intends to enter the transfer portal. His one of his teammates confirmed that after a uh, Tuesday practice that, you know, Ford addressed the team or the offensive line and told them, you know, of his decision and, you know, they wish him the best, but Corlin Ford, a former three-star prospect in the 2020 class, part of that six man offensive line class that USC signed in 2020, former LSU commit ended up, you know, playing a little bit in that COVID season, started one game at left guard Ended up with 12 starts across his career at USC, 20 game appearances, 11 starts at left tackle. I think Corlin Ford is going to get scooped up out of the portal. He is a good looking tackle. He did have a slight procedure in the offseason, which is why he was limited for most of spring camp, wasn't able to do some of the competitive reps. So it's taking a little bit easy, but for the most part was operating as the second team left tackle. And if you recall, you know, one, the starting job as a left tackle in 2021, but ended up losing that at the end of the season. Competed again with Bobby Haskins out of the transfer portal in 2022. Bobby missed spring, wasn't able to go. So Cortland got the benefit of all those reps in spring camp. Cortland opened the year in sort of a rotation with Bobby Haskins, but ended up, you know, starting the game uh, early in the season. But an ankle injury sent him to the bench. And even though it seemed like he got better, he wasn't playing. It seemed like Mason Murphy had jumped him in terms of the depth chart. And Mason Murphy was getting most of the playing time at both right and left tackle, switching back and forth when injuries occurred. It wasn't until the very end of the season that Ford reappeared into the starting lineup, played a lot of minutes in that, that Cotton Bowl game where USC was really banged up across the offensive line. So Cortland Ford, you know, kind of an up and down player, but I think he has, he still has a lot of potential. I still think he was valuable as a guy who has started college games at left tackle, six foot six, 310 pounds to a tackle body, big guy out of Texas. So Cortland Ford is moving on. 
I think that kind of puts a hole at that at that depth chart for tackle. But Gerard, can you name the six offensive linemen in that 2020 class? No, and here's why. It was a failure of evaluations under Clay Helton. That class was a bit of a scramble because USC was not getting offensive line commits. And so they had put their eggs in certain baskets and they just weren't getting commitments from some of those top players locally. And so they had to go sort of later in the year to go into Texas and grab two offensive tackles, at least two guys that had offensive tackle bodies. One was Cortland Ford, who, if you remember, was originally committed to LSU early on out of high school. And LSU basically dropped him. And there was a lot of sort of controversy and there was some talk like, well, no, that's not really what happened. And then there were sources behind the scenes that were saying, well, LSU found out that he had some type of medical thing that went on with the, a lower leg injury. And then that was disputed. So there was a lot of he said, she said as to what happened to Cortland Ford. He was one of the top players in that class, but then sort of dropped out of favor a bit. And his ranking suffered because of it after he decommitted from LSU. So USC swoops him up and it's like, OK, well, you know what? There's potential there. Um, as you said, a guy who's got a you know good looking body uh, physically, you know, passes the eyeball test and what have you. Uh, they also went out and grabbed Casey Collier from Texas, who was another guy that, you know, in terms of passing the eyeball test, like really looked the part, like 6'6", 310 pounds. Casey Collier, I don't know if he ever played a down at USC beyond, you know, just some like 11 on 11 during spring ball. Like he really never really played any at USC during competitive practice periods. So that's Casey Collier and now Cortland Ford gone. And let me tell you why it's a failure of evaluations. Because the offensive line coach during that time, which I believe was Tim Drevno, never saw either of those players play in person. Never. Not one snap. They didn't come to camp. Tim Drevno never went to Texas to watch them play in games. Both of those players were recruits of Mike Jinks. And so when you have the running back coach out there, recruiting offensive linemen, but your offensive line coach is not actually doing those evaluations in person. I don't know if Tim Drevno ever spoke to either of those players until after they were offered scholarships. So that's a major issue. That's how you end up, you know, with the teams and not being able to run the ball and not having cohesive offensive lines. It's very simple, right? You're not doing the evaluations properly. I think that is one of two major evaluation failures under Clay Helton. The other one was Trey Davis, a cornerback that they got at a federal way up in Washington, who, I don't know, what did he make it a week at USC before he transferred to Washington State? He was a former FSP guy. I think USC like made a big push because they were trying to get their foot in the door with the FSP gang and you know, so many good players coming out of that outfit. And so they went after a guy that, you know, wasn't being recruited very highly by other schools. He didn't have a, a scholarship offer from Washington. I can't remember if he had a scholarship offer from Washington State at that point. But he was definitely not one of the top players in the Northwest at his position or otherwise. And USC went and swooped him up. And then he ended up not even making it in a week at USC. And I think he's gotten bounced out of the Washington State program. That's where he transferred to. So, you know, those are two 
two issues where you go, man, that's just you're just not seeing the guys that you need and and what they can do for you, and that hurts you uh, down the line, you know. And 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 this was not the COVID year. This was not one of those situations where you know the coaching staff couldn't go off campus and evaluate and recruit. You know, this was the year before. So um, yeah, that's 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 what I remember from that class. Uh, I know that they got Andrew Millick. I know they got Cortland Ford. I know they got Casey Collier. They got Andrew, uh, Andrew, um, Andrews, um, Andres Yeah. And, um, Caden Stephan. Caden Stephan. Yeah. Right. Right. And so out of that class, what is there? Two guys that now remain? Uh, three guys. I believe you're forgetting about Jonah Monheim. Oh, Jonah Monheim, yes, the, the best of them all, which is the one guy that we did pound <laughs> the table a little bit for yeah. um, coming out of Moore Park, and he was coming out after uh, Drake London. We like Drake London so much. The thing about Monheim, he didn't have a great Nike camp or opening. He he had a very mediocre performance at that camp, and because a lot of the players coming out of that area had been bust, a lot of the Oaks Christian guys, Moore Park guys, St. Bonaventure guys, sort of, you know, kind of burn the evaluators a bit, uh, you know, with a run of, of players that just didn't really contribute a lot in college. I think that hurt Jonah Monheim. But when you turn on the senior film of Jonah Monheim, he was freaking awesome. I mean, he was really, really good. He was a, a really good player at the high school level. Uh, but he was, you know, the one guy that was kind of, um, you know, like had a lot of offers and, 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 you know, schools were really kind of fighting over him. You know, that class was it was kind of put together on the back end of USC, not having a lot of success, getting like their plan A and plan B guys. And again, you had a bunch of turnover with offensive line coaches. You go through really three offensive line coaches with uh, Neil Calloway. Then you go into um, who was the second guy? It was, it was uh, before Drevno, I think. Right. Or was Drevno right out of Neil, Neil Calloway? And then before that was. Uh, but he was under it was, Sark. It was it was uh, Neil Calloway. Oh. Neil Calloway got fired. Drevno right. takes over interim duties. Oh right, and then then and gets full time. Clay, yeah, Clay McGuire comes after Drevno. Clay McGuire is the other guy. I was going all the way back to uh, uh, Bob Connolly, but that was really under Sark. So he was there for a year, which was a terrible hire. And then you know, then there was you know three other guys that were during that time. So there's not a lot of cohesiveness. With the offensive line unit, you bring in Tim Drevno, and I've always defended Tim Drevno as I think he's a good coach, but he was brought into a system that was completely different than any system that he'd ever coached in. And everybody dismissed it and rolled their eyes and said, Oh, it's he's an offensive line coach, it's just the offensive line. You just block what splits you need to have long, wider splits. No, 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 none of that matters. None of that matters, and it did matter, it mattered a whole lot, and you saw. The immediate success, Clay McGuire was actually pretty good at USC. Like USC, towards the end of that year, as bad as they were, actually were a much better team up front blocking and trying to run the ball than they had been in previous years. And lo and behold, guess what Clay McGuire has that those other coaches don't have? He has experience coaching in spread offenses, particularly with Mike Leach spread offenses. So it just makes sense, but for whatever reason – it didn't make sense in the Clay Helton era, and they went different, you know, different directions, and different things happened. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you're seeing still, even now, uh, some of the the re- repercussions from some of those bad decisions. 
bad decisions indeed. But do you think this is a big loss in the long run? Or maybe not the long run, but for this season? It could be if they don't get another offensive tackle. I, I think you would like to have another offensive tackle there. And, and certainly, like I said, portal-wise, there's that potential that you're able to get someone who is at that level of Cortland Ford uh, in terms of production and experience. But if you don't, yeah, you know, when you have somebody behind uh, your, your starters, and, and I don't think Cortland Ford was going to be a starter, and that's, you know, probably the reason, you know, the writing was sort of on the wall and he's decided to go. And his name has been bantered about here, you know, for the last year or so. Mm-hmm. There was, there was yeah. some chatter, you know, that, you know, even bringing in Bobby Haskins, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Cortland Ford starting to look around a little bit. And I think the fact that you were able to bring in Bobby Haskins and he was as important as he was last year hurts. You know, he had to play pretty banged up uh, part of the year. Kind of shows you the confidence level they had in Cortland Ford. I think if you know they felt like Cortland Ford, the potential was there and they could get it out of him consistently, then Bobby Haskins wouldn't have had to play with the shoulder injuries and, and, and literally look like he was trying to put his shoulder back in the, the socket on the sideline in some of those games. So, you know, I, I think that is what it is. Um, but you do now open a spot where you're like, hey, you know what, we'd like to bring somebody else in. And I think because there's potential for more attrition at that position, you have to be very aware and almost kind of plan out like, okay, we're prepared to take another offensive tackle. And you just, you know, hope the right guy, you know, jumps in. And, um, you know, they, they looked at face value, like they got two big time guys out of the portal again with Jared Kingston. We thought, okay, man, that's a guy that, could potentially be a franchise guy. You put in that left tackle, but now you have Michael Turquin, who was a former right tackle playing left tackle. You still have Ethan White, who's going to come in and play on the interior. So you've got Kingston and White on the interior. The interior looks very good. You know, the interior looks solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now you're like, okay, you definitely maybe want a little more depth there uh, on the edge. And and yeah, you get uh, Elijah Page and Elijah Page. You know, we've heard is doing very well, and they're very happy with uh, his progression uh, over the off season. Uh, but I do think that um, it would be very advantageous to bring in somebody else that had, you know, power five experience and, um, you know, maybe, you know, go, go for broke and, and bring in a big time player, a guy that actually could, uh, could start, you know, and compete for that starting job against micro Trukwin. I mean, I think that's ultimately what you want, you know, can't, is that you know, raising the expectations a little too high, seeing that you have a decent offensive line class and you brought in a couple guys already. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's just dependent on, again, relationships, who you can get your foot in the door with. You get guys on campus, then, you know, it, it could be something that we're, you know, it's like boom, bang, boom. And um, they kind of realize, hey, you know what, there's a spot for me. Like, uh, I'll compete against the guy that played right tackle, you know, the last two years. And, you know, who else is there at left tackle? Mason Murphy, maybe, that doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Um, again, I'm a big Mason Murphy fan, sort of inside, but looks like, you know, that's not what USC wants to do. Uh, but I think there's definitely still a spot there uh, to compete at left tackle. It's just, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, Turquin, he's, he's, he's a guy with some experience. And I can see where somebody's looking to maybe come in right away. Maybe they look at that and they go, well, oh, you know, the roster, I think it would be better somewhere else. Um, it just depends on who it is, I think. You know, the, the level of, of, of player you are able to get out of the portal uh, in this window. For sure, absolutely. And I think that also plays into getting to see open practice on Monday because we did get to see 
a lot more than we usually get to see. I was there along with Ryan Abraham and just that whole entire practice. It was a walkthrough of sorts, you know, it wasn't full pads. They were just helmets, shorts and cleats and something called spiders. They're like padded shoulder pad looking things, but no, pads yeah. under the pads. It's basically because shoulder pads themselves are, you know, mainly plastic and, and what have you, but they have sharp edges and they, they, yeah. they, they, they rub, they can rub. So the spiders are, are basically giving you a bit of a buffer between your skin and your collarbone and what have you that's there, your shoulders and the actual pads themselves. So you don't have any like weird edges or something that end up digging into you. Right. So they were in those spiders and, you know, it was kind of a walkthrough-ish practice. But at the end, they did do some uh, 11 on 11, no run periods because, again, no full pads, a lot of throwing, got to see some seven on seven. But there were some guys that uh, absolutely stood out and we decided that we would kind of run through some of the new guys that stood out to me based off my observations. So, Gerard, I'll let you kind of lead the way in terms of where do you want me to start with this? Well, I think, you know, certainly everybody wants to know how's the defense looking? You know, is the defense looking different? And we have to preface this with we don't get to see a lot of the team practice in pads, and that's true of last year as well. So based, it's basing, you know, a no-pad practice versus games last year is basically what you're doing. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, in that context, you know, take us through what you saw from Sam Green. Take us through what you saw from maybe some of the transfer guys that just came in, Mason Cobb, Jack Sullivan, et cetera. Yeah, I will say that before I get into it, they they were specific about can't really talk about where people were lining up. So it was more just general impressions of what I thought. And, you know, Jack Sullivan, Mason Cobb, Sam Green, those were kind of the standouts from what I saw, especially in the 11-11 period at the end, because there was times where USC's quarterbacks were under duress. The the quarterbacks were under pressure. And, you know, the, we could talk about, you know, the offensive line being new and kind of gelling, getting. But it also, 11-11 with no pads doesn't really favor to them. You know, they can't really grab onto anything. So they're kind of just, you know, it favors the defense. Kind of like a one-on-one battle like we see at the, the camps and stuff. But the defense was in the backfield. Quite a bit from what we saw. And I'll start with Jack Sullivan because I had him down for two unofficial sacks. And the guy is just a lot to to, to block. He is a hard man to block. And Sean Newell was kind of raving about him in terms of him being so versatile. You know, he is a big boy at six foot five, thickest guy out there kind of looking in terms of, you know, their, the defensive end specifically. But he's a guy who can also play defensive tackle, kick inside to the three, or play on the five. And I saw him move around. And one of the standout plays for me is watching him, you know, going up against Justin Dietrich and getting him kind of with a spin move. Now, Justin kind of recovered with that. But Jack Sullivan, I was not expecting a man that size to bust that spin move like that. So he is a big guy. And I certainly saw the the potential for Jack Sullivan. I didn't really know what to make of Jack Sullivan when he first committed to USC out of Purdue, you know, kind of a role player, but some starting experience. I didn't really know what his ceiling would be, but now I'm, I'm like on the Jack Sullivan train. Like this guy could be a guy for this season and eat up the PAC 12. So I'm really high on Jack Sullivan. 
and what he was able to do. And just staying sort of more on the front, Sam Green, you know, the thing about Sam Green we've talked about, he's not a big guy. Very physically developed, though. You, I posted a Instagram or excuse me, Twitter of him coming out to practice. His arms are yoked. He has got some arms on him. And, you know, he's not a defensive lineman anymore. He has transitioned to kind of that rush end position, which, you know, is it, is, it fits him better. It fits his strengths better than being, you know, a guy who's got to go up against a play on with his hand in the ground, but uses his get off, uses his speed, uses his quickness, uses all those those strengths of his at that rush end position. And Sam Green, we saw that motor. I saw that motor out there on that field. He was very active. He was always seemed to be around the ball when he was in. Uh, there were a couple of plays where he was like diving over his teammates on the ground to try to get in the face of a Miller Moss, you know, trying to take a deep shot deep after being under rest. He was just, he just got after the quarterback, you know, and that's what we see on tape of Sam Green. And we saw, I saw some of that out there on the field and I'm excited to see what that kind of looks like with pads on, you know, what, what happens when a big offensive lineman to get his hands on him or can they not get their hands on him? Cause he's so quick. He's a guy I really look forward to seeing in that spring game. And I think he's going to have a lot of opportunity cause he's, you know, kind of been getting a lot of reps with the, uh, the rush end position, which Mel Muhammad, another guy we were really excited to see. And then the other guy from the defensive side would be Mason Cobb, who really stood out to me cause he also seemed to always kind of be around the ball and always, uh, being also being very active, excuse me, just like Sam Green was diving around, chasing people. I had him, you know, sliding past offensive tackle, getting right in the back and chasing the quarterback out. He was just all over the field and was just like a little uh, Tasmanian devil out there running all the way. He's not the biggest guy, short, kind of sawed off Saki, but he was uh, he was everywhere the ball was going. So really liked what I saw from Mason Cobb, who's kind of Pushed a little bit. Rajon Davis was kind of operating alongside Shane Lee. Now it's been more Mason Cobb and Shane Lee through kind of the final two weeks. So Cobb making an impact. And those were kind of the standout guys for me on defense in terms of newcomers. Now, offensively, that's where the bulk of the class in terms of playmakers are from the high school ranks. And so, you know, you have Malachi Nelson, you have Makai Lemon, you have Zachariah Branch. We've heard a ton about Zachariah Branch. And certainly, like you said, not really allowed to talk too much about where guys were lining up and what have you. But I think with Zach Branch, and people want to know, you know how, make, how much of an impact is he going to make early on? You know, can he break through a somewhat established receiving core uh, that is obviously got a lot of production behind them? Although he seems to be a bit different uh, to some extent than the guys that are there. Mario Williams, not a big guy. He's a quick area type of guy. He's a, you know, a, a player that you're going to use in space more so than he's going to be a set flanker. But he doesn't have quite the afterburners that Zach Branch has. Uh, what do you think about Zach Branch? Are you still on that train that he's that guy that's even though, you know, you've got a stacked receiver group going to still be able to break through because he's just that talented? He's him. I'll, I will, I know the stock is super high to buy right now, but you got to buy Zach, Zach Branch stock. He, Zach Branch stock, excuse me. He is him. He's just, you know, not the biggest guy, but so developed, so quick, just hands that are 
so impressive. He usually makes one one-handed catch during the on-air drills, and he makes it look so easy. He had really nice one-handed catch where he just kind of reached out, scooped it up, scooped it out of the air, put it in, and he made it look so effortless. And you, he just moves different when he's running routes. And I know he's a freshman, but, you know, wide receiver is an easy position to kind of break into as a freshman and kind of get some reps and get some opportunities. And I know it's a stacked room, but no one on that offense is sort of as fast as him. In terms of that that lightning quick speed, you know, that 10-3 speed, you got to get the ball in his hands somewhere. And, you know, obviously if that's, you know, a kick return, he's at punt return, he's been working at both of those. I think he's going to have an impact on special teams. But you just got to find ways to get him the ball because that's how good he is. And he seems to be making plays all over practice. And he's my pick to lead the offense with yards for the spring game. I think he's going to catch like a big ball or something like a 50 yard bomb or something. I know Dorian Singer is also a candidate to do that, but keep your eye on Zach Branch, you know, breaking a big one down the field. And most of the impressions for Zach Branch came with the seven on seven period. You know, there was one play, he, you know, he caught a couple of catches, but there was one time Malachi Nelson and him, Malachi Nelson was like, his eyes were as big as uh, uh, plates. Cause he saw, Zach Branch shaking free of his defender and he let one go and he overthrew him just a little bit. You know, it's really hard to overthrow Zach Branch, but that also speaks to kind of the, the arm Malachi Nelson has. But I, I like that the very next play, you know, after Malachi come off, you know, they were on the sidelines kind of talking to each other like, hey, and, you know, I saw Malachi like breaking down the route with his hands or whatever, just kind of gesturing like, like what the miscommunication was, what was he seeing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like to see that from the two freshmen kind of communicating to see, like, what went wrong on that play. And then a couple reps later, moved into the red zone, and Malachi Nelson found Zach Branch for a touchdown in the back of the end zone, kind of like a, a, a deep crossing route uh, to the end zone. And Zach Branch caught it, kind of dived for it, fell, and stared down his defender after he got up to, to you know, like, say, hey, I'm him or whatever, you know, just kind of that defender, Chris. We need uh, I believe it was in my notes and I didn't I believe it was Anthony Beavers. I believe that's that is the name that's coming to my head right now. I could be wrong, it's in my notes, but I'm pretty I'm like ninety percent sure it's Anthony Beavers. So the stare down was like the highlight for me. Like that is Zach Branch. That that that's kind of like Amon Ra esque, you know, that that kind of dog in him. So now because I'm the king of transitions, and I know a good segue when I see one. Yeah, you do. You're talking a little bit about Malachi Nelson. Now, I couldn't help but notice, as I was stuck on Fontana for three hours with the flat tire waiting for good Sam to come pick me up with a flatbed, and they brought a regular tow truck two hours into me sitting there for roadside assistance while all this was going on, that Mr. Miller Moss had quite a performance in that practice. The one practice that was open to the media that you guys could watch front to back, Caleb Williams wasn't practicing, but Miller Moss was the guy. Now, with Miller Moss being that guy, what's the over-under in him entering the transfer portal in a couple weeks? What is the over-under? I say a couple weeks, a couple days. What's the (laughs) over-under? Because that's something that a lot of people have talked about and we see former number seven Malachi Nelson there, and now he's wearing a different number. 
but we see the current Miller Moss number seven there. Is Miller Moss going to stick it out at USC? Does he feel like, hey, you know what? Even though I don't fit this offense traditionally, or at least looking at the recent success of the offenses that Lincoln Riley has had, clearly Lincoln Riley with the recruitment of guys like Devin Brown and Dylan Riola does seem to have a soft spot for pro-style quarterbacks. Doesn't seem like he wants to pigeonhole himself with just athletic dual-threat type quarterbacks, guys that can run by design. So is that something where they can keep Miller Moss around because he actually sees where he has the potential to be able to take over for Caleb Williams? Or does he move on feeling that the inevitable is going to be Malachi Nelson taking that spot in the future. What, what do you think? What is your projection? Are we going to see that name pop up in a couple of days in the portal? Or is Miller Ross going to stick it out at USC for another I, I see it kind of both ways. And I know that's kind of like a cop-out answer. Like, it, it's set up on paper, you see, like, for Miller Moss to seek greener pastures. It makes sense. I think he'd obviously be scooped up very quickly. He would have a lot of interest, you know, being uh, – tutored by Lincoln Riley, you know, got a year of training with him and, you know, sitting behind a literal Heisman winner and Caleb Williams and learning from him. You, you see all that. And he doesn't have obviously a ton of tape from last year. You would have liked to get him more tape in terms of getting some backup action. But, you know, you have Malachi Nelson there breathing down his neck. You have potentially Dylan Raiola coming in after that, depending on how that recruitment shakes out. So, you know, the path isn't necessarily going to get easier when Caleb Williams decides to go to the NFL draft, which after this year should should be the answer. It's it's not going to be easier. But on the other side, you know, you got your USC degree, and that's kind of the big thing. He will have his degree at the end of the semester. He'll be good and ready. He'll have that degree in hand, free to go wherever he chooses and not have to worry about, you know, not leaving USC with degree. But on the other hand, I do see a reason for him to stay because I think even though Malachi Nelson, you know, was able to do more in spring camp than we initially projected coming off that soldier surgery, I still think Miller Moss is the best backup in this situation as of, as far as right now. I think he can absolutely hold on to that backup spot to Caleb Williams and I think you know on projection wise I think he'll get more playing time just because you think the defense is going to be better they'll put up more points have more time to get in that second half of play and obviously he's one snap away from being given the keys to a super high powered offense and you know being the guy that's you know that goes with any quarterback any backup quarterback so I see the the potential to him to stick around and be the quarterback for another year. You know, not have to worry about going to another school, learning a new system, getting situated. He could make a run with his team and, you know, play for a Pac-12 championship, play for something more. You know, he's not going to be the starter going into it that we know that. But I still think he has the best shot right now to be the backup once again in 2023 which, you know, has some value. You, you will be able to get some time here and there. And I think most people expect him to leave, but I I kind of think that he'll stay, which that's just my gut feeling right now. 
have to probably do a little bit more talking with some people the next couple of days as Saturday approaches to get a better feel off that. This is just a complete like gut feeling kind of deal. But I, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he went into the portal just to see what his options are. Like, okay, I'm in there. Let's see who talks to me. Does Stanford talk to me? Does, you know, wherever, I don't know, Washington State, I don't know. Just what, what schools are going to talk to me? What schools are going to hit up my line? What's going on there? And maybe just, you know, maybe come back after that. We'll, we'll see. But right now the gut says he'll stick around. But, again, it's like a coin flip at this point. But I don't know what the over-under under over under yes i don't that that makes no sense <laughs> i would say that when lincoln riley took over and caleb williams transferred in usc i was a hundred thousand percent certain that the hourglass had been turned over and the sands of time were pouring towards miller moss transfer out of usc and it was basically just you know i'm gonna wait around long enough to get my degree and then I'm going to go somewhere else. And there's Stanford and there's many other schools that recruited him out of high school that he would consider. I am less convinced now, although I still kind of feel like that's what his decision will probably be. Mm-hmm. But I am less convinced because of Lincoln Riley's push to recruit and consider pro-style quarterbacks for his system. And yeah, you got to kind of go back to Baker Mayfield. And I, I wouldn't compare Baker Mayfield with Miller Moss at all in terms of style of quarterback. But nevertheless, it does seem like Lincoln is very intrigued about having an offense with the quarterback that doesn't actually run the football, uh, or at least I say run the football by design. Is that being part of the offense? You know, this is where you have options, but this is where we actually have plays where you're going to run the football as they did uh, last season with Caleb Williams. So I do think it from, you know, Lincoln Riley's perspective, there's probably been some recruitment of Miller Moss over the past year or so. And, you know, trying to keep him a part of the program. I, I, I think that he would be disappointed, you know, if he didn't get to, to recruit Miller Moss. Miller Moss was, you know, Dylan Riola. Miller Moss was Devin Brown. Miller Moss was one of the top quarterbacks in the class and is one of the top quarterbacks when you're talking about the uh, management side of the game, cerebral side of the game, good leader, good kid, um, has a decent arm. He's not a huge arm guy like Dylan Riola. I, I wouldn't put him in that category where I would say he's an elite arm, but he has a good arm and he's incredibly accurate. And I think one of the, 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 attributes that stands out the most for me is he's got good vision but he's also got very good ball placement and that's something that gets overlooked a lot with quarterbacks it's like hey you know how hard can you throw the ball can you make all the passes and certainly that's very important you don't want to limit your offense because you have to limit your route running just based on what your quarterback can do it can't do with his arm strength uh, but nevertheless where you place the ball also means a lot when you have guys that can do something with the ball once they have it in their hands. And if you're throwing it in their back pocket on their back hip and they have to stop and they have to slide and they have to do things that kill their momentum in running, then they're not going to be able to make plays after they catch the ball. So that aspect of his game has always been uh, very well thought of. And I mean, it would be very interesting to see him in, 
uh, Lincoln Riley's offense, you know, full pads, going full speed to, to, to see. I know we want to see it. We want to see it. Looks. Yeah, how, how it looks. Um, I am obviously a big proponent of if any broke, don't fix it. And Lincoln Riley just needs to continue the formula that he has because it's been about as successful as it possibly can be. It's really hard to argue on any level that, you know, the Jalen Hurts, Caleb Williams, uh, you know, Kyler Murray sort of system where those guys, they not just can run, but will run, uh, keeps the defense very honest. And it, it opens up other things for your offense. Uh, it allows you to do other things offensively. But nevertheless, yeah, I, I think it, um, you know, having diversity within the quarterback room, just like with the receiver room, uh, you know, having very different talents and guys that can do different things is, is, is something that is important. I think it, it, does, it definitely helps you from a play calling standpoint with adjustments. You know, if you have some big receivers and some small receivers, you can obviously do different things in terms of going uh, vertical or, or trying to just take advantage of what the defense is going to give you and using underneath routes to be able to sort of have a pass position offense and just move the chains till you get in the red zone and then you run the ball. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. I am not as convinced, but I, I would be mildly surprised if he did not hit the portal and um, you basically had those three quarterbacks on the roster uh, going into to next year. Because right now they have, they have four um, scholarship quarterbacks on the roster, which is, you know, it, it kind of depending on the program. Some some really like to just have three and not four. Uh, but you've got Jake Jensen there, who's the, uh, the transfer who came in from JC, who actually low-key had a lot of hype around him. A lot of, you know, people mm -hmm. that saw him at the JC level said, man, this guy – don't sleep on him. Like he's 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 going to be a big time player. We haven't seen nearly enough of him to to confirm that or, or say that that's not the case. But uh, he's still there, and obviously we've got Malachi Nelson coming in. So you still have three quarterbacks, scholarship quarterbacks on the roster, which is vital in terms of having one of those guys work with the scout team and uh, be able to give the first team defense a, a legitimate look. You do not want to have walk-ons uh, throwing that football against your first team defense. That does not prepare them for the passing attacks that they're going to see in the Pac-12. And just in general, I like Miller Moss. He's a super smart kid, super mature, gives amazing quotes, and he grew up a USC fan. And I think a part of him always, a part of him still wants to be, or to be the starting quarterback at USC. And, you know, that's like a childhood dream of his. So I think part of him still wants to achieve that, I think he could still achieve that, you know, going to 2024 and that competition. And he's you're, he's talented enough to win games with him if, you know, he is thrust into that role. So I like Miller Moss. Wish him the best. I still think he wants to find success here, but we'll see what happens in the coming days. So it sounds like we're both taking the over on yes or no, which, again, doesn't make any sort of sense. As we move out of this topic, just some quick hitter notes. There was an interesting visitor at practice on Monday, or was it Tuesday? Tuesday, Tuesday practice. That is former USC commit and low South sophomore quarterback, Aaron Jet White. Most people just call him Jet White, but he was on campus with his younger brother, who I presume was his younger brother and his dad. They were taking him practice, eating some sandwiches. That is an unnecessary detail, but they were there. So, USC former commit still still hanging around a bit. Yeah, unlike some of the other former commits, which 
if you read the war room, uh, do not seem like they're going to give USC a second look. Uh, now, interestingly enough, you know, Aaron White, a player that committed uh, as a freshman and was a guy that, you know, certainly with the height, you know, he's a good, legit 6'2", has a great wingspan, has decent speed. But you do look at that 2025 class and you look at the versus the field and there's some heavy hitters there, man. There's some guys that are developing physically that are hard to overlook. And Dijon Lee, the 6'4", 175-pound cornerback out of Mission Viejo, won an MVP at the Under Armour Next Camp a couple weeks ago. We talked a little bit about him. Didn't get much into him as a recruit necessarily, but he is definitely a guy that you get the uh, West Coast vibes from the family kind of would like to see him play close to home. He went to USC for that invitational camp. Uh, it was the last one of the summer and the best one in terms of uh, younger players. Not a lot of uh, upperclassmen attended those camps, but some of the younger players did. And I mean, he was my top performer from that camp. That camp also had uh, Dakota Fields. It had Jordan Addison, who uh, was from Milliken, and now I think he's at Newport Harbor, the wide receiver that's now committed to Oregon. Um, you had some pretty good 2024, 2025 players there, and I was mildly shocked that Dejan Lee got off campus without a scholarship offer. I really thought he was one of those guys that would get a scholarship offer. He did end up getting a scholarship offer from USC just this year, and you know, it, it might not matter. Uh, he hasn't really blown up yet. I don't think a lot of people have, have seen him in person yet. Uh, but he is everybody 6'4". I mean, he's probably taller than Malachi Crawford, who USC signed last year out of Oxnard, who's uh, listed at 6'3 and a half, uh, 190 pounds. And so, you know, Tijan Lee only being a sophomore going to his junior year, uh, it is going to be a question as to where he plays at the next level. Does he actually play cornerback or is he a safety? We do have some isolation clips of him from the camp. If you want to check those out on uscfootball.com that we put up for free uh, where, you know, we have some, some stuff from Dejan. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to focus on the defensive back position the way I wanted to. JP five-star only had a two-star battery in his camera. And it basically went out at the beginning of ones with the receivers and uh, the defensive backs at the end of the day. So I kind of had to scramble and try to get, offense and defense and so I, I i got a little bit of this a little bit of that instead of being able to focus quite as many reps as i wanted to um, another guy who's a very good football player that is definitely stock wise is skyrocketing in my opinion and that's darius dixon uh, i got to see darius dixon back to back uh, that weekend i got to see him at passing down go one-on-one uh, -on -one against philip bell uh, the five-star wide receiver uh, from uh, bishop alamany former school of miller moss by the way way of Sacramento. He actually was at Christian Brothers a year before he just transferred down here. And uh, everybody in the brother loves Philip Bell and is recruiting Philip Bell in the 2025 class as a receiver. And Darius Dixon definitely held his own against Philip Bell. And he had a very, very good uh, UA camp as well. And that's a kid that's, you know, 6'2", 180 pounds, very well built, starter as a sophomore at uh, modern day high school uh, across from Xavier Brown, who's another big time player in the 2024 class so yeah I mean Darius Dixon that's a dude that USC has to make a push on I mean he's going to be a guy in that class uh, along with Dejon Lee as I said before Dejon Lee because of his height 
there's going to be more question as to, you know, where do you actually line him up? You know, is he quick enough to play on the outside against uh, a good number one wide receiver? Or is he a guy that is a little more of a hybrid guy or, or a flat-out safety? I, I can see those questions coming. The other guy that was a, a really good player out of the 2024 class, also at modern day, uh, at the UA camp was Chuck McDonald, who we talked about a little bit on this podcast last week. And I mean, he's filling out, man. He, he's, he's a safety in my view right now. I don't think he's an outside corner. He plays mostly nickel for modern day as it is. And I think that's a great spot for him. I mean, we talk about that sort of safety cornerback hybrid that USC has been pursuing in the last two classes. And Chuck McDonald is that guy. And I just like, but looks at him and and at a camp like that, no contact and it's seven on seven, you know, he, he, he didn't like just jump out crazy, you know, lock down corner type guy. Um, but I think you put pads on and Chuck McDonald signs. And so, you know, with McDonald, Dixon and Lee, you know, that 2025 class, man, that's murderer's role. That's a really deep class. And there's other guys we haven't even mentioned. Those are just guys that showed up at the UA camp, uh, which Aaron White wasn't at. So, you know, Aaron White still considering USC. It's going to be a question of how much does USC consider Aaron White going on? Because mm. uh, you were at the OT7 camp last year, the seven on seven tournament uh, that was in Las Vegas. And uh, there was a lot of evaluations about Aaron White that weren't necessarily so positive. What, what did you see from him? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, OT7 is a murderous row of teams. I mean, they're not all like that but a lot of those teams are super hyper stacked with a bunch of top talent across several different classes and you know Aaron Jet White was you know a youngster out there against some a lot older players and you know he he got cooked a little bit you know he it was a learning experience from him you know he his body type he's long he's still learning you know to to be comfortable in his body as a as a defensive back in a corner but there are some guys that, you know, humbled him a little bit. But again, that's not like over that. That's not uh, unusual for the, the type of environment that he had there is just being a young guy going, going against some uh, older players. But yeah, it, it wasn't a the strongest outing for him in that uh, ultra competitive setting. We've definitely seen some ups and downs. You know, we actually shot a couple games of him in the playoffs last year, kind of ate that tape after the Grant Bucky situation. And um, he did not perform at that invite camp. He actually showed up to the invite camp. He was one of the only ones. It was Dylan Williams and him were the only two commits that showed up to any of the USC camps over the summer. But he didn't do one-on-ones. He went through position drills, and then he called it a day and didn't do any one-on-ones. So that was unfortunate because we wanted to see him go against Jordan Anderson, who you know we knew was going to be a top player. We knew he was going to be good, and he was probably going to get an offer from that camp. Um, and there was, you know, a few other wide receivers that were decent wide receivers that, you know, you want to see one-on-ones and, and you want to see them, uh, you know, be able to go head-to-head uh, -head with. And I think if I recall, no, that was before the OT7 camp. Um, so, you know, maybe he was battling some injuries or what have you, but that's always something that, you know, you want to see top players go against top players and what have you. Um, again, he wasn't at the, uh, the UA camp. Um, so, you know, the guys that we've been able to evaluate lately – uh, in that 2025 class, like I said, it is a very good group. There's depth there, and there's some guys that are showing themselves out to be high-end type recruits. You know, Dejon Lee, uh, again, a guy that, you know, I've, I've 
I've seen a, a lot of here in the, in the past, uh, you know, year and a half and really liked them. And, you know, Darius Dixon, now I, I've been able to see in pads and then uh, watching him against, really against Philip Bell, you know, I got to see him the most. And he did not shy away from Philip Bell at all. He was like, that's my guy. Like, I'm, I'm doing man. I don't care if he's field side, boundary side. He followed him around. He, uh, he told uh, Christian Dunbar Hawkins, like, hey, I got him. You know, that's good. You go on the other side of the field. And I was like, that's what I want to see. I want to see, you know, he knows Philip Bell's a dude. Philip Bell's rocking his Ohio State sleeve and just came off that Ohio State visit. And, um, and Darius Dixon's like, yo, I, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is where I got to shine sort of thing. And so, yeah, that 2025 class, it's, uh, it's very good um, already, you know, with these guys just going into their junior years uh, at the defensive back at the cornerback position. Come for the Cliff Kingsbury talk. Stay for the 2026 cornerback breakdown at the end of the show. That's 2025, Christopher. 2025. Sorry. They're all the same. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. Yeah, I called you Christopher in 2025 because you made the mistake in 2026. And going back to the original thing with grinding, I actually thought that was a typo and you meant I was off the grid. So I was basically just making fun of you talking about grinding when I thought you were talking about grid, which is probably the case. But you'll never admit it because you have too much pride. I do too have much. I do to I do I do have too much pride. We're getting to the end of the show, and my words start to get a little loopy. I know. I mean, imagine if you had to do. Imagine if you had to do the Meredith Schlosser uh, ad at the end of the show, talking about shoulder surgeries. Oh my god! It would be. uh, It would be terrible, terrible, and that's the sign they reached the end of the show, which means we're going to move into listener questions. And just a reminder, if you want to send us an email and get a question read on the show, you can email us at podcast.uspeople.com. Just make sure you put the composite, two-star recruits, Slotcha Boys, Menudo Men, Chris and Gerard, Hurricane, 10K, whatever, just so it we know it goes to the composite two-star recruits, and they'll send it to my inbox. And I'll put it in our little document here. Gerard, we have two submitted questions. One is a multi-part question. So are you okay. ready to... It's a multi. 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 <laughs> See, I'm, I, I, we're going to get through this. We're going we're gonna to get through this. There's a little this. accent coming in now. You got a little, little accent now. Come on, man. I'm ready. I'm pumped. I'm really yeah, excited. Let's go, Chris. Let's oh, do it. Let's finish uh, strong. Oh, Come on. All right. It's all right. Finish. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Let's it, go. Coach, Coach G is in the building right now. Give me a motivational speech. We're going to start with a question from Kevbo. Gmart. What do you remember about Marlon Lucky's recruitment out of NoHo? Went to Nebraska instead of SC. Also, is it me or has the 818 fallen off in terms of recruits or football powerhouses? Tap, Birmingham have been quiet. Thanks. Kevbo, before you answer, Gerard, I just want to say these are my favorite type of questions. When someone just throws out a random name I'm not familiar with and be like, Gerard, what do you remember about this guy? And also, blah, 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 blah. So I'd, I'd like to just hear Gerard go off on somebody from 20 years ago recruiting and just see what see what he says. So, Gerard, take it away on Marlon Lucky, who I have no idea who is. Yeah, Marlon Lucky out of North Hollywood, who was a five-star running back that, you know, initially, and I won't say who said this because I thought that evaluation was absolutely ass, but they compared okay. him. To Adrian Peterson, who came out the year before, and I'm looking at Marlon Lucky, I'm like, oh, Marlon Lucky's a good-looking running back. But Adrian Peterson, who's freaking 6'3", 215 pounds and runs like a 
in the 100 meters. I didn't see that one. And so USC initially, like Marlon Lucky, uh, obviously they had a pretty good running back room going at that point in time. But they liked Marlon Lucky. He had good hands. He was, you know, a solid like 5'10", 5'11", 200-pound running back. Kind of reminded me more of uh, Stephon Johnson than, than anybody. Uh, one of the big issues with Marlon Lucky is that his grades were not great. And that sort of scared USC kind of at the back end as we got into the season. And I think with USC, you know, they were pretty happy with the guys that they were recruiting at that point in that class. And Marlon Lucky was continuing to kind of want to be the guy and sort of wanted to be the, you know, the only running back taken in the class. And, you know, Nebraska was sort of the one-off school that was like, hey, man, you're going to be the guy that we build around, right? And so that was kind of how that recruitment went, where USC was fighting for him early on. But by the time he was ready to make a decision, they had eased off the gas quite a bit because they just weren't really sure about his grades and, you know, is he going to qualify? And is he really that guy? I don't think they ever really believed he was that guy. You know, I think even with Daryl Scott, which is another running back in that era, and he's a 818 guy. He was out of St. Bonaventure, or, or actually he went to Moore Park. He jumped around to various schools. He actually came from Orlando, but he was a five-star running back. He was a big kid. Everybody loved him. Everybody wanted to recruit the heck out of him. USC stayed in that one longer, but I think they also kind of wondered, like, is he really the guy that everybody says he is? And when you have options, you know, you're going to go and Start looking at not only that particular recruiting class, but how is that running back signing going to affect other guys you have in the next class that you feel very confident with? And if you feel like you've got a game changer in the next class, you might hold off. And so USC was actually at that point where they were recruiting so well that you're looking at that two-year cycle as to, you know, who are we bringing in and how is it impacting other players? The funny thing about Daryl Scott, which is to kind of riff off the Marlon Lucky recruitment, is that I remember – Mark Sanchez actually calling him in that class and talking to him and kind of recruiting him away from like UCLA and some other schools and almost like recruiting him to Oregon or excuse me, to Colorado. That's where he ended up originally. I think he then went to South Florida or Central Florida. I, I forget, but they kind of recruited him to Colorado to get him away from some of the other schools. It was like, you know, we're not sure how good he's going to be, but we, we know that he might be pretty good. It's just better to have him somewhere else uh, rather than an arrival type of school. So it was one of those sort of dirty pool things where I heard around the water cooler that Mark Sanchez was making calls at the last minute, not really to necessarily get him to USC because the feeling was he's not going to go to USC at that point, but to possibly get him, you know, away from a, a rival school. It's sort of like the, the stories with Ed Ergeron and him recruiting uh, Joe McKnight at Ole Miss. And eventually where it's LSU, Ole Miss, and USC, and, you know, Ed's like, he's not going to Ole Miss, but I don't want to play against him in the conference. <laughs> so, hey, man, I, I, I love USC. I'm still a big USC fan. You should go to USC. And so it's, it's one of those things. They call it recruiting dirty pool. At least that's how it's been uh, phrased to me with uh, college coaches uh, over the years. Now, the other part of your question in terms of 818 Ventura area, we used to have St. Bonaventure. You know, Moore Park has, has, has had some guys, you know, um, I mean, that's obviously not Ventura, but, you know, Drake London, you know, out of uh, Moore Park. And we just talked about Jonah Monheim being another Moore Park kid that uh, is playing well for USC. Um, a lot of those kids 
some of them have have ended up at schools like you know when Narbonne was making their big run. Um, since then, you know Narbonne obviously had those issues with recruiting and coaches getting fired and what have you. Uh, some of those kids have matriculated over to uh, Bishop Alamani, who also recruits uh, Pasadena very well. Um, you, you really, you know, a lot of those feeder schools up there, um, they just yeah, they just haven't really produced the amount of players. And the guys that they did produce, though, I mean, this is going back to what we talked about with Jonah Monheim. It was kind of fool's gold. And that's hurt some of the evaluations of the kids that are coming out of those schools. You know, Sierra Canyon gets some of those guys. Um, there's, you know, some of those, those schools that are a little farther west. Um, Oaks Christian still has some guys that come through, and they still produce some guys. Uh, but it's been, yeah, less out there in, in, in Ventura in those type of areas and, and more of the schools that have been uh, a little closer into L.A. So, like I said, Alamany um, and Sierra Canyon and, and Chatsworth, uh, those type of schools, Chaminade, are the ones that are getting uh, some of those players now. And, and players these days will travel, man. Like, there's so many guys from the IE end up at modern day. There's, there's so many guys that, you know, move around. You've got some kids that are going to Bosco that are, like, originally from Sacramento. And they just, you know, re relocated. I mean, shoot, talk about relocation. Just the other day, I put up uh, the story on Devin Mitchell, the 2025 five-star tight end who played at Allen, Texas last year, but he's originally from Alabama. And now he's at Los Alamitos. And it's like, you know, I asked him, why did you come out here? He's like, I want to win the state championship and I want to develop as a tight end in the past game, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going, you know, Allen's a pretty damn good high school football program in Texas. That is not like some small town little Texas, you know, two A high school football team. That's kind of the best of the best when you're talking about facilities, the amount of money they they, they put into coaching. But he decided to come out here, and um, you know, he's out here training. And uh, a guy that um, you know, clearly, you know, from the high school standpoint, you didn't hear a lot of that going on. But now we're in the age of IMG and. Even these high schools that are not doing the, the full uh, room and board when it comes to, you know, having kids uh, go to their school are still having, you know, some of these guys move around a little bit. I mean, Aaron White's now at Los Alamitos, too. He was at Orange. You know, that's not clearly as, as far to drive. But these, these families and these kids, if they feel like it's the, a better opportunity, uh, they will relocate. You know, like I said, modern day, they've had kids from Ranch Cucamonga. Um, Jeremiah Cordell was was Ranch Cucamonga kid. Um, Elias Ricks, Ranch Cucamonga kid. You know those guys are going 30 years ago to, to full high. Aiden Miller, Ike, Rialto, Carter, some of those schools, and and now they're just getting in their cars and uh, they're driving all the way down. I mean, even back in the days when you had those big time uh, Oaks Christian teams with uh, Jimmy Clausen and, and Mark Tyler. Mike Tyler is from Palmdale. I mean, he's coming all the way down from Palmdale and going to Oaks Christian, Thousand Oaks. Right. So, I mean, that's a drive like that's 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 crazy. Like for me thinking, you know, when I was in high school, like to go that far, um, you know, that that that's nuts. But you know what? We also have a lot of online classes these days and, you know, they don't have to go to, to the campus every single day um, early in the morning. You know, they're going to campus every single day because they've got to go to football practice. But uh, in terms of like, you know, being there at 8 a.m., uh, not always the case. Some of these classes are online and they're actually just getting down uh, in the early afternoon just for football practice. And our final set of questions questions comes from Andrew A. Dudes, questions below. Thanks as always. Let's start with the first one. And there's three of them. 
What will you both be looking for in the spring game? GM, you can skip over the part where you give your jaded reply of spring games are BS. You can't learn anything, smiley face. So for me, I obviously want to see the defensive front and just the defense in general. I know we're not going to learn like a ton. It's not going to answer a bunch of questions, but we'll get to see some things. We'll get to see, you know, some of the new guys move around. Kyron Barr, Jack Sullivan, Sam Green, some guys I mentioned, you know, the linebackers, obviously Tackett Curtis. And that brings to the next point is just to see some of those early enrolling freshmen out there and making plays and maybe getting beat a couple times and learning from that. Remember, Kalen Bullock had a really rough spring uh, game that year. He got burned a couple times and ended up being a freshman All-American that year. So you can learn a lot from that experience. So I'm interested to see the freshmen. Obviously, there's a lot of new faces with transfers and stuff, but it always goes down to the freshman for me. Wasn't a ton of early enrollees last year that were able to play in the, in the spring game. This year, there are a lot of guys, freshmen, that you can see out there on Saturday in the Coliseum, their first taste of the Coliseum in a kind of a game in front of fans and see what see what happens out there. And obviously, going back to Tack Curtis, everyone wants to see number 25 and see what he can do in front of the fans for the first time. So you want to know who the next Herschel Ben is, Trevon Patterson, Ryan. Okay, we fast forward through my jaded response. And we're going to get to something more positive. I am looking forward to seeing Devin Tompkins and seeing how he plays, where he plays, what kind of impact he makes with that second team defense. Uh, is he a guy that could eventually grow into being uh, impactful three technique? I want to see the rotation of the rush ends because you're going to get a bunch of them. It's going to be an army of rush ends uh, that are going to take the field. And how do you get all those guys in the rotation? You know, who plays? Who makes an impact? I got a feeling we're probably not going to see a lot of Armelo Height, but we will see maybe some guys like uh, Jamil Muhammad. Um, you know, maybe we'll get uh, somebody to sneak a scale on the field so we can actually <laughs> weigh in Corey Foreman. Um, that kind of stuff I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to. Uh, also looking forward to Miller Moss and, and seeing how he runs the offense and how the offense looks with him. It's obviously a game which showcases certain things. And uh, the coaching staff kind of wants to showcase certain things to the fans. And so you have to kind of look at it through that prism. But uh, I am interested to see, you know, how he gets the ball out of his hands, how he spreads the ball around. And obviously, you know, with Zach Branch, we talked a little bit about that. You know, how much are we going to see from him? It'll probably be pretty vanilla. I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of wrinkles when it comes to those freshman uh, wide receivers. Obviously, we're not going to see a lot of Mekhi Lemon because he's been injured. But with Zach Branch, it'll probably be mostly out of the slot. He'll probably throw some little dinky screen passes, what have you, and uh, he'll he'll look like a superstar because he'll probably run through uh, some of those uh, those arm tackles that you see during spring ball. So um, yeah, I mean there's 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 plenty uh, to to look forward to just to see these guys play full speed again. You know, I, I mean as far as me personally watching a spring game, I'm probably less jaded just because we don't get to see any practice anymore. So. Um, you know, when you got to see practice, you got to see 11 on 11 and then it transitions to spring game. You're like, OK, you know, we know what this is going to look like scripted and what have you. And they're going to force feed certain things. And, you know, they just want to show you certain things. Uh, but um, now we don't get to see anything. Uh, you know, spring ball, I'm just like a regular fan. It's like the guy, you know, this is a Trojan fan that watches all the games and knows about all the players, but uh, doesn't get out, able to get down to practice to see anything. Um, you know, this is your first time seeing it. So it's a little bit of uh, that, you know, some anticipation as to 
um, seeing how some of these players actually play in the prime time full speed. And, um, you know, hopefully you get to see some of that full speed. We did last year. I mean, last year, the one takeaway, and I will say this was, in hindsight, a huge takeaway was the fact that how fluid and flawless the offense looked in terms of getting in the line of scrimmage, snapping the ball, no holding, no offsides, guys catching the ball consistently. I mean, we didn't see any of that under the Clay Helton era. We saw the team struggle to get out of the huddle, to get guys on and off the field, false snaps, false starts, holding, a lot of just, you know, inconsistent play, no rhythm to anything. And the thing last year watching the spring game, which was mildly shocking, was the fact that all these mercenaries from all these different places on a, uh, from the transfer portal getting together in a couple of months. And again, that spring ball uh, session was a bit earlier. They didn't have the week break in, in between, which I still don't like, but I mean, we're going to have to watch for that. That's it. You want to watch for something? Let's see how cohesive and how you know much rhythm there is to the offense. They had that week, which is kind of almost a throwaway week. Then they go off for a week. Then they go back on. You know, does that hurt them? Is, is that something where last year's offense, they went straight through for spring ball? Um, is that going to be so? Wait, I'm saying it's they were earlier. Maybe they, I think they were later. Actually, Chris, am I? I'm I'm incorrect in saying that. Let me let me rephrase. Let me strike that from the record. Sure. Yeah, I'll later. make a note of it to strike it from the record. Yeah, they 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 started later last year, I believe, right? Because they went straight through, and I think they went longer in the April than they will this year. Because yeah, because of the earlier. week zero, because of the week zero game. Yeah, they started earlier. And then they have the week off, but but they actually will end earlier, if, if I recall. This is the same schedule that Clay Helm had. This is the same schedule. I can't remember if Sark had this schedule as well, maybe. I can't remember when it started exactly, but uh, this is not what Pete Carroll used to do. They didn't used to have that week after the first week. It just kind of seems like a throwaway week. It's like they've got three days, then boom, they're on vacation. And it's just like, are they going to remember what's even installed or anything at this point? Like, it just seems like it shakes the rhythm a lot but that's going to be something to look forward to you know to watch and see is the offense is bang 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 uh just so flawless it, it wasn't you know oh the big play and he played really well and he i mean yeah you're looking at caleb williams and you're like okay yeah i mean got the arm strength and everything but from a individual standpoint it's less important more as the whole and how the cohesiveness of that offensive unit looked that was and even the defensive unit, I, I think there was one penalty in the game and it was a BS targeting call that uh, was on Latrell uh, McCutcheon. And I think it wasn't really a, a targeting call at the end of the day. I think even, you know, the coaches were like, yeah, whatever, that was a targeting call and he didn't have to leave the game. But nevertheless, it was pretty flawless and mistake-free. Error-free football was something that we took away from that spring game. And, you know, again, spring game, take it with the great assault. We'll see what happens in the season. But now that we saw how well the offense at least played during the season and how flawless it looked and how the penalties diminished, the turnovers diminished. That's what you want to see from a spring game. You want to see a clean, concise, very fluid offensive performance and hopefully defensive performance. So I think as a whole, that's what you really want to look for. Individual performances are, again, I think you're kind of, you know, it's a little forced and the coaches want to show certain things. I think overall, it's just like, hey, you know, if you start to see some drop balls, you see offsides, you see kind of errors that are unforced. Eh, it's not that that's that's taking a step back for USC. As you can see, this is why I had to cut down 
on questions for listener questions because that was like nine minutes. Um, As you can hear, Chris, because they can't see us. This is not the live show. Yeah, this is not the live show. Maybe a live show in the future. We don't know. Number two question. Obviously, you can't name names, but if you heard any smoke around specific incoming transfers, Gerard, I just want you to answer with a yes or no. Yes. Okay, that's it. I'm leaving at that. No, no follow-up. That's it. Stop it. They'll have to they'll have to wait. Number three, what is preventing Lincoln Riley from hiring four or five more guys like Bookie who are essentially paid recruiters? Is it a budget thing? Does he not see the value in too many of those guys or what? I don't know. Can they have a well, Bookie is a student assistant or defensive analyst. They can only have a certain number of those guys, correct? They have a cap. You can't have like 900 of them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's a cap on student workers, are you saying? I mean, there's not a student a graduate worker, assistant. There's a cap on grad assistants. Yeah, he's a grad assistant. He's not a student yeah. assistant because Taylor Mays was a student assistant last year. He got bumped up to defensive analyst, which is the same as Bookie. So, yes, there's a cap on the number of analysts you can have. Kind of. There's not really a cap on how much support staff you can have. But in terms of someone being on the field, correct? Well, that well, there's restrictions for basically anybody who's not full-time assistant staff from a a position standpoint, right? You have those guys from a a on-the-field instruction standpoint. Um, So yeah, the analysts can only do so much, and they can only be on the field so much, and they can't be. it can, there's, I mean, there's actually like it's the communication that you have and things. It's, it's not that you can't be on the field because you you can be on the field. You know, I mean, Taylor Mays was on the field, but it's well, of course, he was on the field. Yeah, I think he was. Um, I don't know if he was a grad assistant. I'm not sure about all the titles and, and what have you when it comes to support staff. They sort of change sometimes, too. Uh, but there are restrictions for anyone who is not a part of the core staff that is the full-time staff the running back coach the offensive line coach offensive coordinator etc etc so those people yeah they do have certain restrictions and um those restrictions carry over to the recruiting process as well bookie is not going to be able to uh leave campus and recruit not unless the rules change which those rules are up for a potential revision uh, by the ncaa where they may actually allow support staff on the road during evaluation periods. As I said, because that was something we talked about last week, that would create much more of an NFL uh, personnel type of staff where you have scouts and your, your, your full-time staff are not going to be on the road like that. Um, you know, we see scouts from the NFL all the time during the season. You know, they come by um, very rarely during the offseason. They're not there a whole lot. It's mostly because they have the draft, obviously. Uh, but it's mostly during the season, you see various uh, scouts and they go and they watch practices, you know, and they watch games, uh, but they watch practices for each of these teams. And that is kind of what some, I think, college coaches are pushing for to say, listen, we got these full time staff guys. They're trying to coach. They're trying to focus on the team. Uh, let's just get some young guys out there uh, that uh, can go and evaluate, you know, that are former players or what have you or whatever the attributes you're looking for, uh, for a scout, because there's guys that are scouts for NFL teams that didn't play, you know, high level football. They're just guys that were, you know, low level college guys or whatever. And they've just come up through 
the the GM branch of of the organization. And, you know, some of them want to be personnel guys. Some of them want to be more on the business side. They end up being scouts. And so, uh, you know, you could have a myriad of different people uh, that are a part of those staffs that go out and you're going to have your your actual full time coaches um, just, you know, um, sitting back and, and, and doing meetings and coaching the guys on the roster. But they're not going to be out there uh, on high school campuses and what have you recruiting and everything. Now, in terms of, you know, what's limiting USC from having more people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat money. It's probably I, I don't know if there's awareness for everything that other schools are doing and the amount of people that they have. You're saying that there's a cap for analysts. Not really. Not there's caps for certain specific positions which require, like for a grad assistant, you've got to be in school and you have to have so many credits and you, you know, you have to, you, and you have to graduate. Obviously, you have to have, 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 a, have a degree to be a grad assistant. Um, there's a there's various different things because that's the old way of doing things where you only had two grad assistants and you only had so many guys that you could have on the staff. But you know that changed. Um, 15, 20 years ago, where Alabama and, 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 and Ohio State and some of these other programs just started stacking their their support staff with analysts, and there are all kinds of different analysts. Again, there are the younger guys that are the former players that are there that are there to recruit. You know, they're there to relate. They understand the recruiting process because they're not that far removed from it. And then there are the other guys that you bring in that are the senior analysts and the guys that are actually coaches like Cliff Kingsbury, like Steve Sarkeesian. Etc. That can help you from a coaching standpoint. So you know, there's definitely on the horizon a potential divergence of those two worlds, and um, it'll be interesting. You know, because then the emphasis that you have on your full-time coaching staff, and I hate using that phrase because you know everybody's working their butts off and they're full-time uh, when you're out of school, like USC. Or Is Alabama. the term countable coaching? I, I guess so. It's full-time assistance, but the guys that are the position coaches that are actually there on the field that, um, that, that have those titles, the guys that are really making a lot of money. Now all of a sudden you're looking for the teachers. You're looking for the guys that can coach. You're not so worried about who's out there recruiting. Now, now there's still going to be in-home visits. There's still going to be official visits and unofficial visits. And you don't want a guy that has, you know, table bedside manner, um, you know, that, that doesn't, you know, relate well and, and, can't talk and, and can't sell the program, but you're not necessarily getting a young guy that's going to grind. And there's a lot of guys that are in positions that are getting position coaching positions because they just are great recruiters, right? And that's first and foremost. But if this changes a bit, it, it's definitely A, going to put more emphasis on how much you're paying your support guys and your analysts, because if they're the ones out there scouting and they've got all your evaluations, then that's pretty important. Now, it's it's going to also depend upon how much contact they can have with recruits. Now, if it's just like scouts and they can't talk to kids, right, because I don't think scouts really have much contact with any of these players, you know, when they're on campus with them. I, I think it's sort of a bump rule. And I've actually never asked this. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with a scout about, like, what kind of contact can you have with the players when you visit campus? I don't think it's very much because I – definitely seems like they come and go um, before and after and there's just they don't like wait around so they can shake a hand or kiss a baby or whatever to try to you know like hey you know we're we're, we're, we're looking at you sort of thing and, and why is that because there's no recruiting that really goes in to the draft you know the NFL draft is the NFL teams are picking whoever they're going to pick it's not hey I hope 
you know, this, I hope Caleb Williams wants to come here. So we're going to recruit him. They don't care. They're like, Hey, we got a big fat paycheck for you. So you're going to come here. We're going to draft you. So it's a little different. You know, if you put people on the road as analysts and they're doing all the evaluations, but it's still a recruiting process, then you got to have some guidelines and some rules as to, are those guys actually interacting with the kids? And do they have to not only evaluate, but are they going to be out there actually recruiting for you and selling the program for you? Now, all of a sudden, that's a that's a bigger thing. You got to put more money into that position because you got to have some dudes that can that can do that legwork as recruiters and evaluators until you bring them back to the position. So I would think from that level that you're going to definitely have, um, you know, position coaches are probably going to make a little less because they're not going to be on the road as much and they don't have to recruit as much because you're going to have to put some of that money into those guys that are the analysts or whatever scouts that, uh, that actually leave campus. Uh, but that's again, if the rules change here, but there's definitely seems to be a bit of a push with that just because there's so, so much recruiting. It's so much stuff that goes on there. Now you've got transfers on top of all the kids that are coming in and you've extended where you can have contact with sophomores now where you couldn't before. And, I mean, it's just the, these coaches, they never get any rest. They never get any sleep. And, and quite frankly, neither the support staff. So I think the push is to kind of have a segmented thing that it's like, okay, these are the people that are going to be doing this. And then the coaches are going to be doing this. And you don't have to have as much overlap where everybody's doing a little bit of everything. And his final thought, Andrew A's, of this three-pronged question is, Oh, and thanks, Jim, for the sleepless nights after dropping your bomb on the P about Lincoln Riley going to the NFL after this year. Thanks. Andrew is the first to admit he gets too caught up in all this. You know, I've seen him be very, very gracious in threads where people have kind of got after him for, for being a chicken little and what have you. And it's not a chicken little. I mean, I understand, you know, you think about these things, you kind of worry about these things and. Uh, as a hardcore fan, and Andrew's a hardcore fan, and he's on that peristyle, he's in those threads, he's following recruiting. You know, he's he's got a little bit of a, a worry about some things, but that certainly was not a prediction. You know, when we broached that subject of Lincoln Riley leaving uh, USC, whether it be, you know, 2024 or, or before this 10, 11-year contract he supposedly has, um, it's just, it's just, understanding that this is a reality as a business and not allowing, you know, that kind of move to be so devastating, like it was for the Oklahoma fan base and the Oklahoma fan base feeling like, yeah, you know, Lincoln Riley didn't go to the Cowboys. So that means that Norman's the best place in the world and nobody ever is going to leave Oklahoma because it's the best of the best of the best. And we are the bestest Sooners of the bestest. And it just is completely blind and not being aware of like, Hey, you know what opportunities come up. If you're very good at your job, people can continue to pursue you. And every opportunity is unique. And, and just because you turn down one doesn't mean the next one isn't going to have something that does intrigue you and you do start to think about it. So, yeah, I, it's certainly like I said, just because you talk about something that can happen, not a prediction that it will happen. I, I never meant for that. And I think people understood that when I when I talked about that. People said, oh, man, you dropped this bomb. It's just in the context of Cliff Kingsbury. And one of the things that he's got to consider as a coach, it's like, listen, you know, maybe I don't need to be one and done at USC. You know, maybe I stick around a little bit. I think Steve Artesian was at US, uh, 
Alabama for a couple of years before he got promoted to offensive coordinator. You know, I mean, listen, if USC has a really great season next year, you're going to tell me that people aren't going to also look at Josh Henson and say, listen to this guy, man, this, 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 we need to get this guy in on an interview and we need to talk to him. He's a very good offensive line coach. And, you know, having an offensive line coach that's also an offensive coordinator and a guy that's been around a very good system, you never know. He could get a head coaching opportunity somewhere. So now that offensive coordinator job is opened up. It doesn't even have to be just Lincoln Riley. But certainly um, the possibility, if you're inside the program, right, and you are there and you're seeing things and you're talking to the administration, and let's say in the event that, you know, somebody swoops in and says, hey, we, we want the, the Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams uh, combo. You know, we want the package deal for the NFL. And we're going to give Lincoln Riley the keys. And Lincoln says, ah, yeah, I got to go to give this a look. You know, this isn't Jerry Jones and the Cowboys. This is, I'm going to get an opportunity to have say over who we draft and who we bring in um, in free agency. Just like I said, the Pete deal. You know, Kingsbury is going to be in a very good spot to say, hey, you know who's a lot like Lincoln Riley, who has some of the earmarkings that Lincoln Riley had and some of the reasons y'all wanted to hire Lincoln Riley. Obviously, he didn't have the resume. He didn't have the wins and losses, which is kind of the big thing. But in terms of, you know, like the, 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 the resume in terms of the coaching and the position and, and who he's coached and what have you, uh, he checks a lot of those boxes. And that would obviously be something that, you know, USC would have to consider and put him at the top of the list. So that was within the context of that conversation. And I do think it is important to broach it and not run around with blinders on and just say, you know, oh, it's, you know, USC is the, the end all be all. It's just a business, man. And there is this thing called the NFL. And some coaches just feel like in their heart of hearts, hey, I got to go give that a try at some point. We didn't think Pete Carroll was ever going to go back to the NFL. Why? Because Pete Carroll hasn't done it before. Pete Carroll had been a part of two organizations that quickly fired him. And everybody said, yeah, you know what? He's not an NFL guy. He's a college guy. He'll fit better with the college game. And he did. But guess what? He decided to give it another go in the NFL, and it worked out. So you never say never. And you just don't want to be taken by surprise by something like this. It just It's naive. You just want to be able to have that conversation, be adults, and say, yeah, you know what? We're fans, and, and, and God, we love that we have a coach that – actually a proven commodity and a guy that has done it before and seems competent. You know, it's the first time in a long time and we're excited and we want to get back to that point of being elite and we feel he gives us a great chance. But at the same time, understand, it's just, you know, one of those things that um, you'd never say never. Well, I guess that's like a really fun way to bum everyone out at the end of this uh, podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm a little disappointed. There's no treat. That's how I feel about the end of this podcast. Gerard, we will have thoughts on the spring game when we come back. And until then, it's time to just go back to grinding. You got to grind. You got to come back with just nothing but little nubs in our teeth because they're grinding so much. And then we have to go up the grid. We, we've talked about this. We need an offseason. We don't have an offseason, Chris. We rolled right into season two. We rolled right into it. And it's Yeah, maybe. Maybe after the spring game, we'll take a break after that. Just that'll be the ender cap of spring. And Can then we'll we take come a back. break when the second portal window has opened up? I don't think that's wise, Chris. I feel as though we have 50. We have 50 more to do before you get your tattoo of 200, which is, 50, which is 100 for you and 100 for me. Because you're going to get a tattoo on my behalf because I'm not going to get a tattoo 
because two would be crazy enough to get a tattoo over some crazy number that means nothing but just, you know, that would be crazy, right? Nobody would do that. Jeez, I'm an idiot. Yeah, that's how I'll end on that note. I'm Chris. That's Gerard. This has been another episode of Composite Two Star Recruits. Episode 50. Join us for 51. We're going to talk about the spring game. And we'll never know what happens uh, next time. So we will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruit. Did you get leopard so